This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. This is episode number 54. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you. We are both uh, recording this podcast today, as you can see behind me, in snowy, cold Denver, Colorado, although um, I'm sure there's other parts of the world that have it worse or they're colder than where where we're at. But uh, our kids had snow days today and a lot of businesses are shut down today. So thanks for powering through the weather and the elements to, to do the show with me today, Kyler. Oh, absolutely. I'm a child of winter. So if we were, you know, somewhere hot, desert, no, but snow, I can your, Yeah, this is my, this this is is my jam. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm with you. You know, the first two or three inches, I was enjoying it. But now um, looking at my driveway and realizing I'm going to have to shovel that later and or uh, enlist my kids to do it, yep. um, made yep. me realize maybe I'm not quite as excited. And also seeing the temperature dropping below zero uh, later tonight. Um, I'm sure, like I said, there's people in the upper parts of North America and parts of Europe that uh, have it a lot worse. So I guess I shouldn't, shouldn't complain. Right. Um, yeah. So we've got a great show for you today, despite the weather, despite the elements, hopefully you're, as you're listening here today, hopefully you're having great weather wherever you are uh, listening in from today. Thanks for being here. I've got a great show for you today. We're going to start things off with um, sort of a rapid fire series of hot topics that we'll cover. We're going to cover uh, industry 4.0 and manufacturing digital types of topics. We're going to talk about uh, digitization in the auto industry, how data drives financial and digital transformations, as well as uh, some other uh, interesting topics. So we'll cover that in the first segment. And then later in the show, we have a first-time guest who's never been on our podcast before, but I suspect he'll be on uh, multiple times uh, now and in the future. And that is Clifford Martin, who is our um, executive vice president. uh, And actually, that's inaccurate. It's not executive vice president. He's managing director of third stage consulting in Africa. So it's our most recent office that we've opened internationally in Cape Town, South Africa. He's going to join us today from South Africa talking about how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable. So if you're going through a digital transformation, if you're working with a system integrator or a reseller implementation partner, how do you manage those those implementers and how do you hold them accountable? That's what we're going to talk about with Clifford. So I'm excited to have him on the show. And then finally, last but not least, the third segment today, we'll talk about the whole concept of technology agnosticism. Is that a word? Agnosticism? It is now. I just made it up because Mm -hmm. we do talk about buzzwords a lot on the show. And what better way to talk about buzzwords than to create our own? And uh, that that buzzword is technology agnosticism. Of course, I'm going to have trouble saying that term uh, throughout the show. So bear with me on that. But we're going to have Nate Stroher, who has been on the show before. He's a Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting. Um, He's actually recently uh, promoted into a different role, Um, so he's a practice lead now uh, here at Third Stage in the United States. He's going to be on the show talking about just what does this whole concept of technology agnostic mean when you're going through a transformation? Why is it important? How can you be more agnostic as you go through your 
evaluation, your strategy, your planning, and your actual implementation as well. So we'll have Nate on the show to talk about that later uh, in the show. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of these hot topics you've got here. This sounds like a really cool series of topics that you wanted to cover here today, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to start with Industry 4.0 because it was very interesting researching that and probably all of our manufacturing professionals know a lot of this already. But when we talk about kind of the evolution into Industry 4.0, when we're transforming the manufacturing force, we're talking about all automation, robots kind of constructing products and what that looks like. And what we've seen a lot of businesses do is kind of create a flagship manufacturing facility that features a lot of these new automations, AI, machine learning, predictive analytics, those types of emerging technologies. However, it can be next to impossible from my research to kind of make an existing manufacturing warehouse without completely scraping it into that fully automated piece of it. And I, I just wanted to get your feedback on that. So we're talking about things like flexible piping, extensive wiring, harnesses, like completely redoing manufacturing cells because the robot has, you know, mobility uh, constraints and, and different components like that. And then also completely redoing the product and the way that it's made so that it can be automated through that entire work stream. Um, so I, I, I was interesting to get, I was interested to get your feedback on that to see if you kind of think that as these types of technologies emerge and those efficiencies kind of take place within the workplace or the manufacturing floor specifically, do you think that we'll be able to kind of upgrade uh, existing manufacturing footprints to actually feature these newer technologies? Yeah, I think we will. But I think the, the caveat to that is what you said, which is it's it's not just a as simple as putting in the new technology, oftentimes you have to rewire or reconfigure your shop floor and or your warehouse, especially when you look at, you know, a lot of manufacturers out there, a lot of warehouses out there have these legacy um, layouts that have just grown organically over time. So as the company grows, as they take on new products, new raw materials, or open up new um, job shops within the, the factory floor, they sort of just organically grow into a hodgepodge or unstructured way of organization. So, you know, it's not just, to your point, you can't just put in technology and assume that it's going to work in that environment. Same with your people too, you know, in, in addition to the physical layout and maybe reconfiguring physically how things are structured, you also have to retrain people and uh, revisit your internal competencies and sort of rewire the organization in that way too. And then certainly your processes and workflows have to have to change to keep up with the technology as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great reminder that technology is just one cog in the big machine of transformation. Yeah, and sometimes you think about these technologies as creating those efficiencies, but what are the things that you have to do as a business to be ready, to be able to consume and create business value out of those efficiencies? You know, for example, when we're talking about Industry 4.0 and the connectivity of it, you really have to have a stacked technology system where it's not a bunch of different, you know, software systems that are able to integrate with one another. You know, the data has to be the exact same. It has to go through the exact same process. There can't be any sort of breakage in that or the entire system goes down. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. You know, we, we talk about integration a lot on this show. And I actually just did an interview um, on Digital Stratosphere, our other podcast, our sister podcast, about uh, the 2020, 2022 trend that is integration. 
Um, and this is kind of takes it to a whole new level. So lots of exciting improvements. It's just about figuring out logistically how you make that change as a business. Yeah, it's, and it's a great reminder to organizations out there going through transformations that you can, you know, you can certainly invest heavily in technology, but you shouldn't put all your eggs in that basket. You have to look at the other the other investments you need to make to get the full value out of it. So, in other words, if you if you were to implement the coolest new technology that has all this upside benefit potential, but you're still really inefficient in terms of how the shop floor is laid out or how, how you get raw materials from the warehouse into the factory floor, or whatever the case may be, you can see how quickly you're watering down the potential upside of the of the technology and you're wasting money by having this technology you can't use. So you'd be better off sort of redirecting some of that investment and focus to the non-technology pieces, whether it's physical layout or the organizational change or the processes and workflows or all the above. Um, you've got to you know make sure you invest in the whole thing and look at the whole picture. Absolutely. And, and something else I, I found when kind of researching those 2022, it's going to take me to 2023 to be able to say 2022, just so everyone's aware. No, without it's, muttering. <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm struggling with it. Um, but <laughs> when we talk about trends like data, which we talked a little bit about last week, and really focusing on what does data mean? Like what what is the point of actually optimizing that data, being able to consume it, and obviously being able to take action around it to um, you know, increase your overall production. And a lot of what I've been seeing as far as the messaging within the industry is really focusing on the data should be driven by the CFO and really financial pieces behind it so that you can understand what is the ROI. And that's really the data to focus on is we might have all of this really interesting insights, but until it's going to actually create business value around revenue or the bottom line or whatever your business objective is. So I wanted to kind of, we, we talked last week about a CIO talking about change management. So now here we have some CEOs talking about CFOs. <laughs> so I wanted to see kind of your reaction of really kind of charging the financial side of the business to really manage and, and run uh, data migration and management. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I guess on the surface, I'd say that that's a that's a good thought. I mean, it certainly you, you certainly want to counterbalance the the IT focus to where it's not just a technology project, it's not just an IT project. So I think that part of it's on the right track by by engaging the CFO or or maybe making the executive be the or making the CFO be the executive sponsor. Um, but you know that that only gets you so far. So in other words, it's it's if you have a CFO as the executive sponsor and that sort of becomes the focus or the priority of the transformation, then you're probably going to get good reporting. You're going to have good GL, you know, good financial processes, but it still may tell you more accurately how screwed up your operations are. So the good news is you got better visibility to know how screwed up your operations are. So you really need someone from the operational side too. And when I say operations, some people would argue that finance is operations, depending on what industry you're in. But I'm thinking more like if you're a manufacturer or dis distribution company, the more you can involve supply chain and some of the, the hands-on, you know, factory floor type uh, processes and involve that or engage those business stakeholders in the process, the more you're actually going to get the business value that can then be measured accurately by the finance, the CFO or the finance group. So I think you kind of have to have both. You know, if you can get certainly IT involvement, maybe supplement that with the CFO and the COO or whoever's the head of your supply chain. And ultimately, it gets to a bigger point, which is there shouldn't be any one person that's sort of focusing just on their area. You really need to have that executive steering committee that's looking at 
you know, the entire organization, because ultimately these projects can and should uh, affect, impact, and improve an entire organization. Definitely. Absolutely. And, and that's kind of that holistic approach is really what's going to drive the success. And I think that's kind of the, the messaging throughout the industry. It's just bringing more people into that conversation that have been that had been there in the past, right? So a lot of times we've seen it as an IT-driven project or an operations-driven project, depending on what you're doing as far as new technology within your business. But now we see people like um, you know CMOs coming in and chief sales officers and really you know working on how do we optimize the business as a whole, so um, we can make sure that we're hitting our enterprise strategies to your point. Um, another really interesting piece that I wanted to kind of talk to you about that's kind of along those same lines of those emerging technologies is just kind of the, the auto industry and how they're going through a very significant transformation right now. Obviously they've been highly impacted by um, the supply chain issues, by the shortage of chips and those types of things. And it's it's a really interesting model where we've seen really kind of hardcore, hard goods manufacturing meet technology. Because now, really, the car is, is a computer, and it's managed through those different systems and, um, you know, interactive GPSs and all kinds of things. Also, in kind of touching on the 5G conversation that we had had just a few weeks back, uh, we, we look at their mobile hotspots now. Uh, and creating that connectivity and the difficulties in kind of bridging into the telecommunication industry because it's heavily regulated, as we all know. Um, so I wanted to get kind of your feedback on just being in an industry, if you've ever seen that transition from more of like a hard goods manufacturing to becoming almost like a technology company when that wasn't something that was expected. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of saw it maybe on a on a different scale with the retail, you know, the bricks and mortar retail industry. You know, those those companies um, have been sort of forced to become more e-commerce and data and technology driven organizations. They certainly still deliver uh, goods and products at the end of the day, but it's it's a totally different customer experience, and they've had to change their business models to keep up. Um, you know, a more recent example might be you know, the whole taxi slash Uber slash Lyft um, service model. Um, those are tech companies. Some, some would argue they're, they're, they're transportation companies, but really they're, they're tech companies. Um, and then same with, you know, food delivery as well. You know, the, the, all the technologies around um, getting a home delivery of different restaurants to, to your home and, and now even just, you know, having people that can bring you products from other stores besides grocery stores or besides uh, restaurants. Um, all that's becoming, you know, kind of an emergence of technology that's totally transforming or changing the business model or the way that people think about those industries. Absolutely. And, and almost how the business is structured, right? Um, and how, how that looks really building out that IT support, even if you do have a third-party vendor that's really creating and implementing the software, how do you manage customer service and all, all of those different levels that, um, you know, maybe wasn't something that you did in the past? Right. Yeah, absolutely. One of, yeah, one of my favorite examples of that is um, a brand I'm super fond of, which is Rent the Runway, um, which is basically a, a way to rent designer clothes and then you send them back. So I always use them like we have to go to a wedding. You know, you order it through the app, 
they send you a bunch of different sizes, you wear it, and then you send it right back. And, and I know customers that have done that for things like maternity clothes or you know something that they needed on like a part-time basis. But when the founders built Rent the Runway, they built it as a technology company um, and focused it only on the user experience within the app and then also raising capital to get that type of inventory, which I can't even imagine what that was like. Um, but just, you know, that that transformation into it sounds like a retail business, but it's actually not. It's actually an app based technology conglomerate. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, too, of, of uh, I don't think this is exactly what you're alluding to. I, I'm not familiar with the rent the runway or how the pricing works, but um, I don't think I'm in their target market either. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, I honestly demand. don't know if they do men's clothes. They should, but I don't. I have no idea. So, <laughs> but you know, it just brings up the point of this whole subscription model um, too. I think that's another way that t- technology has has affected businesses. Even non-tech businesses are trying to figure out ways to create more of a subscription offering or subscription model. Um, sort of like what Netflix pioneered, you know, way back when. Oh yeah. You know, back when they were mailing DVDs or yeah. whatever they were. They sort of pioneered that whole subscription model even outside, even before they become the tech powerhouse that they are now. Yeah, and, the, and they've stayed that way, right? We've seen a lot of people go into that, either be acquired or anything like that. Um, but Netflix has really owned that space and continued to evolve with the technology and stayed competitive in a lot of big industries, obviously, are, are in that now. so And it's almost made cable completely obsolete, you know? Yep. Yeah. Another example of how technology has totally disrupted an industry and made, you know, the incumbents somewhat obsolete. Right. Absolutely. And the last thing I wanted to mention um, was about one of uh, the software vendors we work with quite a bit, especially in our mid-market, which is Infor. Um, they recently had their annual conference and um, Kevin Samuelson, their, their CEO, talked about kind of the future of their business model. Uh, and they and they openly kind of talked about the issues they'd had in implementing their software, specifically with a, a large retailer, a British retailer, where they they lost about six million dollars in a um, an ERP failure, which for a company of that size is pretty considerable. You know, we hear the the billion dollar failures with Nike and things like that, um, but really the, these do hit hard if you are more of a mid market company. And they talked about their evolution to making their product more industry focused and reference things like the healthcare industry or the public sector, um, aerospace and defense, what that kind of looks like in, in more focusing on industry based. So we talked a little bit about kind of the evolution to best of breed and being more flexible solutions. I wondered if you might give us some insight or your feedback on if you feel like this is kind of the, where the software vendors will go into really become a niche uh, solution for specific industries for that referencing effect of being everything to everyone and having a lot of big, very public failures. Yeah, first of all, I have to ask, was the failure Travis Perkins? Is that the one that they refer to or did they not mention the, um, the name of the retailer? You're not supposed to put me on the spot. I feel as though we discussed <laughs> this. No. Um, uh, let's see. I think it's Elmer Perkins, if I am not wrong. So Elmer per- okay. Perkins fiasco that resulted in Infor paying the British retailer about $6 million after a failed implementation of M3 in the cloud in 2020. So, oh, okay. 
Yeah, if, if anyone in, in our UK audience is familiar with them, I'd yeah. be curious to know if they, they know anything that we don't about that yes, retailer and that transformation. Teach us, um, always. Yes, exactly. Um, but I, I'd say that, uh, you know, it, you hit the point, the nail on the head, where, which is that I think ERP vendors are always struggling with how can we create this mass solution that, that scales, that can do all these different functions for all these different types of businesses. But then they, but then every, the more they do that, the more they struggle with say the, you know, I'll, I'll, because you mentioned auto manufacturers a minute ago, I'll talk about an auto specific ERP system, which is Plex systems. So Plex systems is a product out there in the marketplace that focuses on auto manufacturers. That's sort of their bread and butter. Um, there's others too. I mean, other, other industry verticals have, um, products that fit, you know, within them like, uh, professional services and government nonprofit unit four, unit four is a product that kind of hones in on those, those industries. So you're always going to have like these big vendors like Infor, they're trying to be everything to everyone. Then you're going to have the unit fours, the plexes of the world, Epicor, you know, focuses on manufacturers and you, there is always going to be this conflict between the two, you know, do we try to be everything to everyone or do we provide industry solutions? And I think, you know, it sounds like that's Infor's way of trying to walk a fine line between both. Um, although I will say Infor is a little bit more focused than say an SAP or an Oracle. I think SAP and Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics too, they all struggle a little bit more than maybe Infor does because they are truly trying to be everything to everyone. Whereas Infor does have sort of its its sweet spots and they're pretty, you know, they're fairly focused when you compare them to some of the bigger vendors, although they are they are a big vendor. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's, I, I think uh ERP vendors are going to have to go that way just to ward off the plexes of the world, the unit fours, the work days, or the um, Salesforce on the CRM side, you know, all those, those niche players, they're going to have to do both play offense and defense, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was refreshing from a software vendor to hear like, Hey, we, we haven't done that good a job. So we're going to do a better job in these three areas. I think that's a really smart, you know, strategic decision um, that we don't typically hear that transparency on the software side. It's a great point. I, now that you say that, it, it's just absolutely true. I don't know. Usually it's more of a defensive, like, oh, it wasn't our fault. The yeah, client screwed exactly. up and, you know, our, our technology is awesome. It, they just couldn't figure out how to use it. Um, whereas it sounds like they're saying, hey, yeah, we, we've got a, some vulnerabilities here, some culpabilities and how we implement or how our solutions use. So let's, let's figure out a way to fix it, which you're right. That is refreshing. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, that builds a lot more trust with the market than if you if you just try and blame your clients. Which I always found that fascinating. That yeah, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a potential buyer and I look at a vendor who's blaming their customers for their failures, that's not at all what I want to hear. So, it's uh, scary. Yeah, that's. I mean, who would want to be a potential customer when you see them kind of like bashing their other potential customers? Because who knows they're going to do that to you? Yeah, especially when it you know it gets when it escalates to a a lawsuit and you know hopefully you know, most organizations don't get to that point ever but the thought of it potentially getting to a lawsuit and then being drugged through the mud publicly you know in the in the back and forth you know it's just you would hope you have a better partner than that but you're right that is refreshing though yeah and, and i enjoyed your conversation at the live stream with clifford earlier this week um and just a reminder to our audience eric does his live streams every tuesday morning um, so make sure you can, you can set a reminder on his YouTube channel as well that will notify you when they're starting. But we talk a lot about SI partners and just, you know, vendor partners in general and how to make sure that project ownership or that transparency translates when going through a digital transformation. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, excited to have Clifford on the show to, to uh, play you this, this discussion here where uh, we talk about how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable, which is a fascinating topic, something that uh, we're passionate about, and we help a lot of our clients do just that. So we'll have Clifford Martin on the show here in just a minute, uh, but before we bring him on, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, If you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com. At the top of the page, you'll see an icon for registering for Digital Stratosphere. So be sure to check it out, Digital Stratosphere, February 8th through 10th. Hope to see you there. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 54. I'm here with Kyler Sheetham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as all the audio podcast platforms like Amazon, Spotify, Google, and uh, Apple Apple Podcasts, among others. Uh, any Anywhere you listen to podcasts, uh, be sure to check us out and subscribe. And uh, we have new episodes every Wednesday. So I'm excited for our new, our next guest, I should say. He is a new guest, first time on the show. His name's Clifford Martin. He is uh, someone I've known for some time. He's relatively new to the third stage team, and he is, uh, he's helped us open our office in Cape Town, South Africa. So he's our managing director of third stage consulting in Africa, and uh, he manages the team and clients uh, in the African region. Uh, but that's not what he's here to talk about. He, I think he he will allude to, to Africa, I'm sure, just because that's where he's at and where he's joining us from today. But the real focus is on how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable. And actually, before we even get into that, we're actually going to unpack where some of the challenges are. You know, what are some of the common risks and pitfalls that organizations face when trying to manage their system integrators? And ultimately, how can you manage them better? How can you hold them accountable? And this is a really interesting conversation because this is one of the keys to why transformations fail. It's because organizations sort of abdicate responsibility. They outsource to their system integrators. System integrators do what's in their best interest, which is generate as much revenue as possible, which is not in the best interest of the client. And it creates this uh, snowball effect of problems and challenges and lack of transparency, misaligned goals, all that stuff. And so what we want to do is unpack that a bit and understand why does that happen and how can we as uh, practitioners or, or as organizations implementing technologies and working with system integrators how can we avoid some of those challenges? So with all that being said, uh, Clifford, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. And uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody dialing in. Wonderful to see the uh, messages and 
people coming in and stating where they're from. Um, so looking forward to the session and, and certainly I would encourage people to pose questions and ask questions. I think if we can make it as interactive as possible, that'd be wonderful. Uh, perhaps Eric, then a very quick intro for myself. Um, I'm an ex-CIO. I left the corporate world probably 12, 13 years ago. I did have responsibility for multiple ERP implementations during that time. And um, post, post my career in the corporate world, spent uh, a number of years with various consulting houses from Ernst & Young to KPMG uh, to Gartner. And last year joined uh, Third Stage and it's been a, an exciting journey. So uh, great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And glad to have you here today. And, and I think this will be a fun topic to talk about. It's a very timely and relevant topic. Um, it's certainly relevant to uh, most organizations that go through implementations. And we'll dive into that here in just a second. But I think you and I have a fairly unique perspective in that we both came from sort of the dark side, if you will. We, we both worked at the, the big system integrators. We know how they work. We know sort of the inner workings of, of, of what happens there. And so what I wanted to do is, is talk today about um, some of the challenges of, of managing your system integrator, how to hold them accountable, how to ensure your project is successful, which by the way, uh, a bit of a spoiler alert, your system integrator is not responsible for your success. You, typically you as the implementing organization are. So what is it you can do to ensure that you you achieve that success? That's, that's sort of what we'll talk about today. But before I jump into that, and, and I certainly, by the way, at any questions you have, please drop those in the chat as, as we're going here today. I've got a list of questions I want to ask, but I'd rather take audience questions. So I'll, I'll get us started. But any questions you all have, please feel free to, to chime in and drop them in the chat here and we'll we'll get to those questions. Um, but I guess just to start, Clifford, um, throughout Africa, just like other parts of the world and, and you're based in Africa, but I think we you and I both have more of a global view of just how these sorts of projects and massive transformations work. But whether it's Africa or any other part of the world, um, there's a number of failures that are caused or can be directly linked back to a failure to uh, provide oversight and management of the system integrator. Um, what are some examples of the, those sorts of failure points or maybe just help us unpack a little bit. What are some of the the, the risks or challenges that are uh, inherent in these sorts of relationships between organization and the system integrator that oftentimes leads to failure? What are, what are some examples or some of those higher priority examples that come to mind? Yeah, so thank you for that question, Eric. So, so I think, uh, you know, inherently we, we're in an industry that is focused on, I think, primarily two things, uh, selling software and installing software. And, right. and often the misalignment in expectations I feel, between the industry that we operate in and the client's own expectations. And I deliberately use the word software installation. <laughs> and perhaps I'm being a little bit harsh to their size, but essentially that is what they do. And I think often an organization is expecting a, a, a strategic partner, someone that's going to walk the full journey with them from, let's say, from business case to business benefit, and he's going to be them and guide them throughout that. And very often that's not the case. The, the, the primary focus of the SI is to, to deploy the software. And, and, and I think that there's often that expectation gap and a failure on the part of the client then to properly manage the SR and ensure that they get out of the deal what they're expecting and often what the marketing material has promised them. So perhaps to start then, perhaps let me just add a little caveat to that. You know, it, it, it is, SI's play an essential role. It's, you know, and I'm not kind of trying to diss them in any way. They do play an essential role. And certainly the ERP projects that have an SI on board 
are much more likely to be successful because they do bring structure and focus in a certain discipline and methodology. But what's good, they do need to be managed. And I guess that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not that people want their projects to fail, obviously, and it's not that they want the relationships to, to get sideways, but oftentimes they do. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, what are, what are some of the, just in your experience, what are some of the root causes of why you think organizations struggle so much with that relationship and, and managing those system integrators, holding them accountable and really extracting the value they bring to the table, but not letting it get out of hand or, or go off the rails? What, what are some of the reasons for that? Yes, I, I, I think the, the issues on both sides of the fence, and by that I mean both in terms of how the, the way, the manner in which the SI constructs and approaches the, the particular ERP or digital transformation project, as well as on the, on the client side in terms of the capabilities that they require to ensure success. And very often, just a definition, a common understanding of what constitutes success, or for that matter, what constitutes failure, is not present and there's no common agreement around that. Certainly nothing embedded into the contract um, that talks to success. So, so I do think there are failures on both sides. And, and as you correctly state, one can never outsource accountability for success. That has to reside with the client. I think we, we, we all know and, and accept that, but so often it's not the case. So often it's sometimes I think convenient for the client to to kind of pass that buck to the SI and expect them to, to drive success. Um, and then I think, Eric, what, is, what I find it to be extremely important is, is, is the whole contract negotiation and what are we actually bringing the SI on board to do? Because SI contracts, and, and I've reviewed many of the tier one SI contracts, they're pretty standard. Um, and, and, and I think the client needs to understand what the SI will not be doing. There are certain capabilities that, and, and we can unpack that in a bit more detail as we as we go through through the conversation, but there's certain capabilities that they simply not do not bring to the party. And standard SI contracts are primarily framed in technology terms, and the deliverables are framed in technology terms. Whereas very often, what the client is trying to do is to achieve some business outcome, some improved operational um, experience, or bringing new capa business capabilities to the party, or enabling their strategic objectives, whatever the case may be. So there's this disjoint between the two, and I think if 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 the client if clients do not um, very very forcefully ensure that the SI statement of work talks to what they're wanting out of the project, we already start off on a from a place where there are these misaligned expectations, and it's very difficult to bring that together thereafter. Yeah, yeah, you bring up a good point there around um, the fact that you know, technical deliverables aren't necessarily what organizations are trying to get out of these transformations at the end of the day. It's certainly a key part of the output. It, you need those deliverables, but there's a lot more to it than just delivering a system that works from a from a technical perspective. So I think that that sort of myopic focus that system integrators have, which is why you hire them, by the way, you hire them because they have that depth of knowledge. They know the software really well, whatever software it is you're deploying. But it's the other stuff outside the technology that ultimately makes the project successful, whether it's, you know, the process improvement or the change management, the architecture and data migration, the overall program management. And that's typically stuff that these system integrators don't bring to the table. It also seems like that a lot of times, tell me if you agree with this or if you have thoughts on this, but it seems like also there's, there's a sort of two other dynamics at play when organizations are managing their system integrators. First of all, 
the organizations typically aren't experts in whatever sort of deployment you're doing or any sort of digital transformation, which is why they've hired the system integrators. So there's a, on one hand, you can understand why you hire the system integrators. They're there to sort of fill the competency gap that you don't have internally. But that lack of knowledge and that lack of experience can lead to sort of a blind Absolutely. management of the system integrator, which which can be challenging. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a dynamic you've seen as well? Yeah, such a good point, Eric. And you know, my, my first my first action point is if I engage a new client is to have some type of executive boot camp, you know, because we kind of assume that the executive understands what, what a, a typical transformational EOP journey looks like, what are some of the critical phases and deliverables, some of the critical decisions that they will be called upon to make throughout this journey. Um, and, and, and they don't, and it's probably unfair to expect them to do that. And, and if you look at the average ERP or digital steering committee, you know, we kind of take the, the, the different managers of the different business domains or lines of business and, and kind of bundle them together into a steering committee and expect them to oversee and drive success. And I think that's unreasonable. Um, so one has to ensure that the that the that the executive is educated on their oversight role. And let me also say that, you know, how we define these 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 ERP transformational journeys, the default from their side is going to be defined to define it as primarily software installation or a, a technology project at the very least. Um, and I think the executive's role is to take a full life cycle perspective on this and look beyond. You know, deployment of the solution is not success. It's, a, as you correctly say, it's an enabler. So we now have the enabling technology in place, but exactly how we're going to leverage that in support of the business objectives is something that the executive need to plan long after the SIS popped the champagne cork, declared victory and moved on to the next project. So, so I think executive education and ensuring that they, that they, they stay in the game is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And and you need to know, you know, it, it's not that you or I would suggest that an organization needs to become an expert in digital transformation before they embark on one, because that doesn't make sense. Sure. And that's not realistic. Sure. But you need to educate yourself enough to know, at least enough to know what kind of questions to ask, how to push back or challenge assumptions that SIs might have, you know, they've got their cookie cutter boilerplate approach that may or may not fit with your needs. And ultimately, it's up to you to, to say, hey, you know, these parts of your methodology or your approach works, but here's what we think we need to do to modify to fit our situation. And that could be, you know, culture, cultural nuances. If, you, if you're a risk adverse organization, for example, and you, you just move slowly as an organization, there's you can't just come in and force fit a fast deployment. You've got to sort of right size it for your organization, just, just as one example. So I think just knowing enough about these implementations, being self-aware to know how we can kind of meld these two competencies together, our own internal competencies with the system integrators. I think that's a big, uh, an important point as well. Yeah. And perhaps I can add to that in terms of, of if we're talking about capabilities within the organ, within the client organization, you know, one often finds vendor management to be quite poor, or, or at least not at a mature level where they can effectively manage their SI and hold them to account. Um, and just having that, that kind of, you know, level of, of professional skepticism, you talk about pushback, absolutely. Because we do know that the SI, part of the agenda is going to be to drive additional revenue, often through change requests or customizations or additional functionality. So having that, that professional skepticism to push back and ask, is this really necessary? Is this within the scope? What, what are the implications of this? Is it priority? Can we do it post-deployment? Um, is extremely important. And then the, the, the vendor management 
um, I think is, and let me add to that as well, a third capability, program management, especially when there are multiple SIs involved or multiple projects within a broader program. It's so important that the, that the client organization has a mature program management capability, typical at PMO office, in order to pull that all together and orchestrate it and, and drive the integration and drive and ensure that there's at least a common approach, common methodologies towards a, a common integrated goal. So I would say those three capabilities, the, the executive know-how the, the, and, 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 and oversight, the vendor management capability to kind of manage the SI, and then the program management capability from a delivery perspective to pull this all together. Right, yeah, yeah, very good point. All right, thanks for that, Clifford. We're gonna take a quick break and jump back into this conversation, but before we do, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 54. I'm here with Clifford Martin. We're talking about how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable. Let's jump back into the conversation. Um, just before we, we keep going with the questions here, just to give you a quick uh, overview of who's, uh, where people are joining from today, I'd ask the question to open up, you know, where, where are you joining? And I ask people to drop that in the chat. Um, just a, a few examples here. Um, we have someone here from uh, Florida State University um, in Florida. We've got someone from uh, North Carolina uh, we have someone joining on LinkedIn from South Carolina in the United States, uh, Columbus, Ohio in the United States, um, as well as an international audience, as I mentioned, too. We've got uh, someone here from Toronto, um, someone joining from the UK, uh, Brooklyn, New York, which is not international, at least where I'm at, but uh, it's still a, a global audience, and uh, someone from Kuwait and uh, India, just as a few examples. Um, of, of where people are joining from today. So thanks everyone for joining and letting us know where you're at today and whichever platform you're watching on. Again, feel free to drop uh, any any questions you have for Clifford or I as it relates to this topic. And uh, we'll get to those here in just a moment. Um, so some of the issues you've just talked about, Clifford, why do you think they're so prevalent, um, not just in Africa where you're at, not just in the United States where I'm at, but throughout the world? Why is this such a global challenge? It, it doesn't seem to be something that's just you know, pockets of the world are struggling with it. it seems to be a pretty global problem. So why is that? What, what do you say the root causes are? Yes, um, Eric, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it is prevalent and, it, and, and I find it very interesting that the same issues that we're discussing now, if we were having this discussion five or 10 years ago, we'd probably cover a lot of the same crowd. Yeah. So these, these things seem to be perpetuated. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we need to also understand that, that, that SIs have tremendously powerful marketing machines. They come with a very strong, experienced team. They have a, 
a very slick um, approach in terms of engaging and embedding themselves within organizations. And, 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 and I don't mean this as an affront to SIs. SIs will do what SIs do. I think um, the, it's incumbent upon the client to manage that, as with any vendor or partner, or, um, you know, with any type of project within the organization. So I do find it um, both frustrating and interesting that it seems to be very similar issues that the technology changes, but the issues tend to stay the same. Um, and, and I do think that, I mean, if we just take contract negotiation as one example, you know, you have a, a tier one vendor with a, a big team often sitting in the background of technical people, attorneys, legal input, and senior partners negotiating, and you have some poor guy in procurement who's probably never done this before in his life, representing the, the client organization. It's an absolute total mismatch, you know. Um, so so, so I, somehow these issues do seem to continue exactly what the answer is. I don't know, but I do, I do think that given in the last few years, we've had a number of high public, certainly in this part of the world, uh, failures uh, with uh, in the ERP, in the transformation space, um, it's public knowledge, it's been in the public space, some of the big tier one consulting houses have been involved. Um, so I, I, I certainly think that, um, you know, organizations are, are, are kind of waking up to the fact that they have to take control of these projects, they have to be a, a lot more skeptical, they have to interrogate things a lot, in a lot more detail um, and, and, and manage it a lot, a lot closer. So whilst I say that the issues seem to continue at the same time, and let's face it, I think uh, what one also sees is that organizations appointing third parties to provide some independent pro program assurance and advice on an ongoing basis and assist them in this space. So, um, so whilst things stay the same, there, there is some, some positive news and I think there is some, some, some positive things happening in terms of better managing SIs. Yeah, it's a good point. I agree with you, by the way. I think I'd, I'd take your point even further, which if you go back 20, 20 plus years, back to when I started my career in the space, it was largely the same. You had the same dynamic, the same challenge, and some of the same root causes that um, that organizations struggle with in that management of, of their, their vendors. And I think the key, you know, one of the key takeaways that I always leave clients with or, or encourage the market in general to think about this is, you know, view it as, as your project. You know, you, you're the, you're almost like the, think of yourself as sort of the general contractor um, building a house. You've got subcontractors and different experts that you're bringing to the table, but ultimately you need someone as a general contractor to manage those resources. Your system integrator is one uh, important component, but you've got other, you might have other people that are helping with change management or data migration or your internal resources, of course, are, are critical to the project. So you just need sort of that, that global program management view and that sense of ownership, you know, that sense of empowerment that, hey, this is my project and I'm going to make decisions. I'm going to take input. I'm going to listen to my advisors or to my system integrator. But at the end of the day, this is my project, my business, and I've got to do what's best for my business. And I, I don't think enough organizations have that confidence or that mindset. I think a lot of them just think for a lot of the reasons we've discussed, they just think, hey, I'm going to outsource this to my system integrator. They're the experts. Um, I don't know enough about this. I don't have time to deal with this. So therefore, I'm going to sort of outsource this and abdicate responsibility to the system integrator. So I think that's a, it's a really good point, a series of points that you make there. Yes. And, and, and I think, Eric, to continue on that conversation topic, what one has seen, in my view, is that we have at least seen a shift from IT, from IT departments or IT organizations within 
the enterprise managing, almost solely and exclusively managing these projects to a, a great involvement from, from the business side. Um, and, you know, to the extent where business managers and super users and, and subject matter experts are, are seconded almost on a full-time basis to the project and play quite a, a significant role as a, as a significant stakeholder group, and as they should. So I do think that's positive because it ensures that it, it brings more of a business slanted and, and at least positions the organization to better achieve the business objectives of the project. Um, right. So I think that's a positive. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'd be curious to hear from the audience here, especially because we have people from so many different countries, if these are some of the dynamics you've seen or if you've seen some different dynamics potentially uh, in your part of the world. And um, speaking of that, we have a couple other uh, guests that have joined that have also indicated where they're from. Uh, Deborah, who's a connection of mine on LinkedIn, uh, says bonjour from Paris, France. Uh, I don't know if it's too early in the day in the day to say bonsoir yet. I'm, I'm not sure what time of day you switch from bonjour to bonsoir. I always get confused on that, but either way, he hello um, there in France. And uh, we also have Abdul from uh, Pakistan joining as well. Um, so thanks everyone for for being here. Um, so what when you think about some of the uh, the larger system integrators, and you and I both come from uh, an environment or, or from one of the bigger system integrators. What are some of the unique challenges of dealing with a larger system integrator that organizations should be aware of, with, like a Deloitte or Accenture or a KPMG, whoever it may be? Yes, I, th I think it's always a question as to what what model does one adopt? Is, is it a multi-vendor multi model? Do we, or do, do we kind of throw the baby out to the bathwater and give it all to one large SI? Um, and then pretty much be fully dependent on that SI. Um, you know, so so there, there, there are different models at the opposite end of the spectrum. I have seen some organizations quite successfully cherry pick the, def, the best independent contractors out of the market um, mm -hmm. and utilize that. that that's, that's, that's an exception. Um, so, so I think that is, that is an important question at the outset of the, of the transformational journey or ERP project. Um, but, I personally, I do favor a bit of a mixed model. I, I, I think having, and certainly uh, I do favor building a very mature capability in the organization to be able to manage these different vendors. But one's always going to have a lead SI. I think that is important. Um, and, and, and it does sometimes make sense. I mean, we go back to our earlier point, there's certain capabilities that the SI does not bring. So you have a choice as to whether to to, to plug that gap yourself as the client or to bring in some independent players. And the typical areas are data, data cleansing and migration, uh, training, user acceptance testing, change management, post live support. There's often a kind of hypercare period for two to four weeks where the SI stays on board before they try and kind of hand you over to an outsource, to their outsource arrangement. Um, so, so I think there are pros and cons. Um, and one thing that I think is absolutely essential in terms of managing the large SIs, Eric, is that one has to have some type of predefined quality criteria linked to the deliverables, clearly defined in the statement of work, and preferably linked to the billing schedule, you know, so that it's not just a time and material driven contract or fixed price contract, but there's, there's, there's some incentive for them to, to ensure that they deliver to a predefined and documented level of quality and completeness, whether that's testing or design or data migration or customization, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and 
certainly the standard SI tier one SI contracts are not going to come with these. They are not going to give you the ammunition by which to manage them or the tools by which to manage them more effectively. You need to as the client ensure that you embed that in the contract up front. And then it's easier. It's not easy, but it's easier. I do find that the tier two vendors are more open to, to, to negotiation. They're more flexible in terms of their standard contract T's and C's and, and statements of work. But certainly at the tier one level, I think it's, 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 it's quite a tough negotiation process to get those types of um, clauses embedded in the contract so that you can better manage that SI. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I agree totally with that. And it seems like, you know, there's a, with the big system integrators, um, it seems as though there's so much money at stake for these system integrators when they have these bigger projects, if they've got 10, 20, 50, however many full-time equivalents on a project, that's a big revenue stream for them. And so one thing I noticed when I was at one of the system integrators is, is we would spend an inordinate amount of time just figuring out how could we not only keep those 10, 20, or 50 resources on the project, but how could we add a few more? How could we get some more people uh, in, embedded in the project? Um, and there's also there's also a sense of sort of a, uh, a curtain, like don't look behind the curtain. Like if I'm the project lead or if I'm the partner at one of the system integrators, I remember being at the system integrator, there was sort of a, a, an imaginary curtain there that's like you'd have the lead face of the team that would go deal with the client. But everything we were doing behind the scenes, there was almost like an intentional arm's length distance so that the client didn't have the visibility to see why there were so many people yes. on the project, what were we doing, how, who's holding us accountable. And so it's a it's a conflicting interest. Uh, there's a conflict of interest there um, because the system integrator is trying to maximize their revenue. You're just trying to make your transformation successful at the optimal cost. And those two things are in direct conflict. So is that a dynamic you've seen or, or do you have any suggestions on how to how to navigate that? Sure. Sure. And, and, and if I may just divert to the questions, there's a great question I've just noticed from, I'm not sure if, if it's Harsin Kabara, um, talking about the, how to manage that SI, and specifically the example that they mentioned is post-co-live. Um, and, and the point being made is that very often there are only, the, the issues only surface a couple of months after Goliath. And I think it comes back to your point, Eric, and the, and the, the issue we were talking about earlier around how do we manage this in terms of ensuring the quality of their deliverables and the quality of solution that they deliver at the end of the day. And I tend to advise clients to steer away from, from and talking in the post-Goliath space now, to steer away from time-driven time measures, i.e. we will provide six weeks, eight weeks, two weeks support, and move towards quality-driven metrics uh, we will be on board until you have executed all your critical business processes, until a significant, a critical mass of your end users have logged onto the system and are able to access and, and perform their duties, until you have executed all your significant business cycles, whether that be the budgeting cycle or performance management cycle or year end or month end, whatever the case may be. So I think it's a, it's, it's, and, and of course it's too late then, you know, when you do pick up issues, because probably if you hadn't read the fine print in the contract through the process of user acceptance testing, you've, you've adopted the solution. And to a large extent, um, you know, you've diluted your ability to, for, for, to, for remedial action, for, for recourse and going back to the SI and saying, hold on, there's some issues over here which emanate from the project. So I think it's so important that we have those quality metrics throughout the different phases as well as post-collab and that we hold the SI to account um, to ensure that the solution is within a reasonable time 
stabilized in the business and that the organization starts to leverage and it at least is on a trajectory towards achieving the, the original state of benefits that which gave rise to the project. So um, to me, it, it does come back very much to ensuring that, that the statement of work and the contract is properly structured so that you can hold the SI to account for their deliverable. Right. Yeah, and even just within that too, just taking a more active hands-on role to to know, you know, what are these different work streams, different tasks and deliverables that different team members from the SI are working on and, you know, being a part of that. Because I, I think, uh, again, a lot of times organizations take sort of a outsource mentality or a delegation mentality where system integrator is going to do it for X amount of time and money and I'm not going to worry about how it gets done or how the sausage gets made. But you should worry about how the sausage is made because it's your business. I mean, you're the one that's going to be living with this for years or decades to come. So you need to make sure you're you're involved in that. All right. Thanks for that, Clifford. We're going to take a quick break and jump back into this conversation. But before we do, we'll t- take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 54. I'm here with Clifford Martin. We're talking about how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable. Let's jump back into the conversation. Um, what about this? Here's a question that's somewhat similar, and this is from Sam Graham. Hello, Sam. Good to see you again. He's uh, Sam is a, a regular attendee for a lot of these uh, live streams we do and, and a great participant. He always has really good questions. Um, but the question is, you mentioned training, but do companies need ERP education as well so they can understand and challenge the SI's advice and decisions? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. Great question. And it comes back to our earlier discussion about executive bootcamp <laughs> and, and not just at the executive level, but, but ab- absolutely, um, Eric, and thank you for that question. Um, and it kind of, to me, starts with how, how do we define this journey? Because if we're going to allow the, the, the industry or the SR to define it, it's going to be pretty much defined as a technology project um, with success achieved at the point of deployment of the solution. And of course, we all know that, that, that's not the end of the project. It's it, it's not even the beginning of the end. It's perhaps the end of the beginning in terms of that all your work still lies ahead of you in terms of deriving business benefit. And there's no good reason to implement an ERP, in my view anyway, even a technical upgrade, um, unless it's going to achieve some business benefit or as a minimum, um, remediate some risk within the organization. So so I, I do think that, that, edu- that defining the what this project looks like, what is that life cycle and, 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 and the, the role that the executive needs to play over the full life cycle is fundamentally important. So in a nutshell, absolutely, it's, it, it is unreasonable to throw 
you know, a hodgepodge of executives together and expect them to successfully uh, play a meaningful role in, in over the full life cycle of the project. Um, I think it's unreasonable without some education. Right. What about, and this sort of relates to this whole education concept um, and a lot of the things we've been talking about uh, so far, but what about bias? How, do, how does bias from the system integrators, how does that affect a project in terms of, uh, you know, certainly by this point, by the time you've deployed or, or employed a, a system integrator, you already know what the technology is you're deploying, but it seems as though there's biases in how technology gets deployed and there's biases in how much of that technology you should or shouldn't use um, that can be in conflict with, with the best interests of the organization that's actually implementing. So what are your, what are your thoughts? How does, how does bias fit into all this, all these challenges we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think clients are often are even perhaps not unexpectedly, you know, we need to recognize that there is some relationship between the solution providers um, and and the the partners who implement them, you know, so the Oracles, Microsofts, SAPs of the world, and the Tier One SIs. Um, so, and and the question is always, which, what do we do first? Do we do we find the solution ourselves and then bring the SI on board? Do we use the SI to find the solution um, and then possibly deploy them on, as a partner on on the journey? Um, so, and and the pros and cons and and you know, to, to to all those to all those different approaches. Um, but certainly one has to, you know, I, I kind of like this term, very professional skepticism. One needs a high dosage of that when dealing with SIs. And, and once like, again, SIs like. will do what SIs do. <laughs> but we, 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 we do need, and, and from the beginning right through to the end of the project, because let's face it, they are going to try and generate additional revenue. And, and, and in most cases, the, the senior partners and, and directors on that project are personally incentivized to generate additional revenue, and there's certain ways they're going to do that. Um, I often find that, you know, in one, I like to think it's an extreme example. Um, I had a, a, an example where a tier one, with a senior partner for a tier one vendor, actually chaired the client's change advisory board, i.e., the forum through which all change requests came through for increasing the scope of the project. Now, that's a clear conflict of interest. Now, one yeah. cannot have that. Um, because with the best will in the world, you cannot expect that individual to be making objective decisions um, around your your business, your money, and to what extent you increase the scope with the requisite implications on the budget, the quality, and the timeline of the project. So, so I do think it comes back to ensuring that there's very clearly defined roles, and that in terms of the decision making that resides at and, and is retained within the organization, we cannot give that up to the SR because it is unfair to expect them to make decisions in our interest as a client when they are subject to all these other pressures back in the own organization to grow the account. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just from a services perspective either. I mean, it, that that's probably the bigger, more immediate risk they have is that the, the SI is trying to grow their account, grow their revenue stream from the services side. But then there's also this bias on, on call it the, the product or the technology side, where it's sort sure. of like you're, you're kind of going in with blinders. If, you, if you're implementing SAP, for example, I'm thinking SAP first for everything, which may be the answer most of the time. But there may be parts of your business where we should not be using SAP or whatever ERP system for that. We should be looking for a third party bolt on or maybe we should be creating a custom solution. I mean, that's not the end of the world if we do something like that. 
but your system integrator is going to push you toward that product um, in, in all instances in, or in most instances. So I think that's a, a, you know, a lot a lot of organizations face too. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and, and I think, Eric, it comes down to, to, to the to the request for proposal and the RFP and understanding what your requirements are. And I've seen some organizations, and I think it's actually a good tactic, is to have a specialist company come in that is not an SI and assist them in formulating the RFP or at least running business process workshops and, and, and requirements gathering sessions with their end users to better understand exactly what are the current pain points, what are the future requirements, what's the strategic intent of the business, what new capabilities do they require, is it a tier one solution, is it a tier two, tier two solution, what's the best deployment method, is it on-premise, is it SaaS, um, and what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of the different solutions out there. And I quite like that approach, because then one gets to a, perhaps not a, a detailed blueprint, but, a, but a, a fairly low level of detail in terms of understanding what are our current requirements or what are our future requirements and how big are the gaps and having that separate. And of course, if one does that correctly, it's, it does then reduce as a positive impact on, on the cost structure for bringing an SI on board because a lot of the design work is already done and one can then continue that it becomes reusable and repeatable throughout the, the life cycle. So one way of dealing with that bias that you refer to, I think, is to firstly very understand extreme to extremely well what you're wanting out of the solution, mm-hmm. exactly what you're wanting it to do, and uh, number two, having that that exercise independent from both the SR and the solution provider. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you you've hit on another thread here as far as you know how to how to counter or what's what's the antidote to. Um, some of the challenges we're talking about. We've talked about the education and how to you know, educate yourself uh, so that you can at least know enough to ask the right questions and challenge assumptions. Um, the other is to take ownership uh, that we've talked about. And then uh, you know, you've talked about a couple other things here as it relates to, to managing that relationship and, and really um, ensuring that you're, you're not being biased in that, in that process. And having that, the third thing you bring up or the third thread is just sort of that clarity of vision, that clarity of what we want to be when we grow up. The better you understand that, the less likely you are to fall into these traps where if you don't have a clear vision of what you want to be when you grow up, now all of a sudden the power dynamic has shifted. Now you've become even more dependent on the system integrator. They're taking even more control, more ownership of the project, when really what you should be doing is tilting that back towards you and, and taking that uh, that control. And I also, by the way, really like that term you used, uh, professional skepticism. Um, I always tend to use a word buzzkill, but uh, I like professional <laughs> skepticism better because that's that's a more uh, positive or uh, professional variation of, of that as well. Um, I, I wanted to uh, just bring up a, a really interesting uh, point here, just just to, if anything, to validate uh, Clifford that you and I are not the only ones that are uh, have this uh, sort of uh, jaded view of system integrators from having been there. But this is from Louise on LinkedIn. She says that she's really enjoying the discussion. One of the reasons I left an SI and became an independent consulting was just such conflicts of interest as I became more senior in my career. Um, so that's exactly why I left the big system integrator too. It just, there's something about it that didn't feel right. And uh, there's other reasons too, but um, that, that conflict of interest and that feeling of uh, extreme bias and not necessarily doing what was in the client's best interest never quite it just didn't sit well with me. And, and so it, it, for that reason, I ended up moving on. So I, I'm glad we share that that same sentiment. Um, this is a little bit different question, but really important one, building on a point you made earlier, uh, Clifford, about how to how to have 
the right um, statement of work and the, and the the contract and setting expectations up front. Along those same lines, though, the question from Abdul on YouTube is what kind of KPIs should a company be looking for during or post implementation of an SAP project? And actually, I think this question, any sort of ERP project, whether it's SAP or any other system, can you kindly share your views on that? What are your, what are your thoughts? Great, great question. And, and you know, Eric, it's, it's such an important topic and it's this whole issue of benefits realization. Um, and companies start off with very lofty and noble ideals uh, encapsulated in their, in their business cases and program charters and so on. And very quickly that gets left behind and we all kind of in the trenches and stuck in this ERP project are just trying to survive and, and make the go live date. So I certainly advise clients that in parallel to the to, to the project rollout, we have a benefits realization work stream that starts with taking the the the, the business case, the, the stated benefits or the envisaged benefits in the business case, unpacking that in more detail, baselining that against the, the current company metrics. As an example, if we're pursuing operational excellence, as 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 which is often a very um, important role and, and kind of fairly standard objective of an ERP and I don't think you should ever be implementing an ERP if you're at least not going to drive some best practices and operational excellence and improved operational performance. Um, so and, and, and there's certain key metrics and of course a lot of the tier one um, ERPs these days come with those tools um, you know uh, on the SAP side something like value lifecycle management they're embedded and part of the ERP solution and, but I don't think clients are aware of them enough and certainly don't use them enough. Um, so I do think the benefits realization needs to be a separate stream. It needs to be owned. And, and of course, one can get external assistance. It needs to be owned by the organization. It needs to drive a lot of the decisions we're making. If we're looking to, to, to land new capabilities, let's use e-commerce as, as an example of a recent client. That's the, one of the reasons to enable new business capabilities within the organization of your ERP platform, then that needs to form a key part of the design. Now, you spoke about the cookie cutter approach earlier. We cannot then have the SI coming in and having a uniform standard approach when we are well aware that in a particular area of the business, we're wanting to really um, get a mature capability in place. We've got to then you know, kind of focus the design around that, the testing around that, the user training around that, and that's going to inform and drive the project lifecycle. Um, so if we don't have these, these, this benefits realization program and we don't understand what we're trying to get out of the system and ensure that we scope and approach the different phases of the rollout or implementation with that in mind, then we lose sight of those benefits realizations and unsurprisingly, we never achieve them. So the whole area of having a parallel benefits realization work stream, utilizing the tools that are available to inform and drive those benefits out during the project and post collab, I think it's fundamentally important. Yeah, great point. It ties back to the, your point about that clarity of a vision of what you want to get out of the system. What, what do we, first of all, what do you want this transformation to be? You know, what, what's the intent? What are you trying to accomplish? What are the sort of the high level parameters and guardrails? Having those, those clear expectations and understandings as well as the metrics that support that. Um, it, it's just another, uh, arrow in your quiver to give you more ownership and more more control and more accountability uh, of the project as well. Yes. I'm just a quick uh, comment here from uh, Paramala, which is a really cool name. I may be mispronouncing it, but that, I like that name a lot. Um, I totally agree with Clifford. So I'm not sure which part she agrees with, but maybe it's just in general, but uh, 
at least someone listening here today agrees with with you you and I here in, in the discussion. Um, and then um, Kyler, who's our uh, co-host of this show, of this podcast, uh, pointed out that we have a new buzzword alert. And if, if you listen to the Transformation Ground Control podcast often, which if you don't, I encourage you to, uh, we, um, I don't, I don't want to say we make fun of buzzwords, but we, we have a good time with buzzword alerts uh, on that show. So we, you helped us create another one. So thank you, Clifford, with that uh, professional skepticism, uh, which I am, I'm going to steal that idea, by the way. Um, so I guess we've talked a lot about some of these bigger system integrators, um, and that was sort of the last uh, thread that I that I had asked you about, Clifford. Uh, but what about smaller SIs? And you started to talk a little bit about this, about how some of the tier two system integrators may be lesser known. They don't have the brand name recognition. You don't see their billboards at airports or they're not sponsoring golf tournaments. So you may not know them as well, but there's some really good ones out there that can be more flexible, more willing to negotiate. What are some of the pros and cons of working with someone other than one of the big tier two system integrators. Yes. So, so, so I think with the, the tier two system integrators, you know, they don't generally have the breadth and depth of skills um, that, uh, that a tier one would bring. And, and especially if, uh, as, as happens, there's some churn and turnover of resources on projects, they're not necessarily able to instantaneously replace them with a similar level skill. So one, 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 that is a risk. Um, I do also think that sometimes their method, implementation methodologies are not as robust or comprehensive. Um, and, and certainly I'll give credit where it's due, the tier one SIs have a you know, well-tuned, comprehensive um, and robust implementation methodology, whether they use, they borrow that from the solution providers and activate or assure step, or in the case of SAP and Microsoft as examples, or whether they have their own, they're generally quite similar. But they bring that to the party, and I do believe that governance is a is such an important aspect uh, in terms of being successful in this in this area, having effective governance. And um, so, so, so one does find that the implementation methodologies are a little bit lighter, perhaps a bit weaker. They don't they don't necessarily have all the trackers and templates and tools that come with the tier ones, and the one therefore has to augment that yourself. Um, and that, of course, implies that you do need to, as the client, then if you are using a tier two um, SI or multiple tier two SIs, you do need a, a stronger program management office. You need to be kind of the glue that brings it all together and that drives the quality and the standards and is able to augment, whether it be on tools, methodologies, resources, skills, as and when required, and, and possibly play a bigger role. I would say, but perhaps that's not a bad thing. Perhaps, you know, I do feel sometimes that drives greater ownership and involvement on the side of the client as well, because there isn't somebody, you know, standing there saying, you know, very happy to to take control of your project and, and help you spend your money. So, um, yeah. Yeah. What, what I've seen too is some of these uh, tier two uh, system integrators, and I agree with everything you just said, by the way, as far as some of the, the strengths and weaknesses. But another one I'd add is that a lot of times with, the tier two system integrators, you're getting more senior people because a lot of people start off their careers like you and I earlier in our careers worked at one of the big system integrators. But at some point, oftentimes people get burned out, you know, sort of mid-career and move somewhere else. And a lot of times they go to a smaller tier system integrator just because it's a better fit, it's less stressful, and for other reasons. Have you seen that as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. I do think one has, um, you know, you have the attention of the executive and of course, you know, it's often a, b a bigger account for them, relatively speaking, than it would be for a tier one. Yes, I mean, for that, you, you do kind of get more attention and 
um, and, and quicker response to issues. So, um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. All right, thanks for that, Clifford. We're going to take a quick break and jump back into this conversation. But before we do, we'll t- take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, If you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, There's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D, Stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello and welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 54 i'm here with clifford martin we're talking about how to manage system integrators and how to hold them accountable let's jump back into the conversation First of all, a, a comment here from uh, Louise, a strong governance PMO. She strongly agrees with with those points. And I think regardless of what type of system integrator you use, whether it's a big one, small one, tier two, um, having that program management in place is really important. Um, and then here's another question from Sam Graham again on LinkedIn, which is a really interesting one, a good question, as always with Sam. Uh, is it true that many very large organizations are actually an, an, an AMAGA of smaller business units. And so tier two systems can sometimes be an option. So in other words, if you're a big company, but in, on paper, you look like maybe you should be deploying an SAP or an Oracle, but really you're just a bunch of smaller business units that combine to create a big, uh, a big overall business, that might be that a tier two system or multiple tier two systems might be the, the better answer. Is that something you've seen as well? Sure. I think the question is always, with those types of organizations to, you know, to tier or not to tier. Um, and do we have and a model that one sees often is uh, in terms of the, the transactional commoditized type business processes, the back office, generic business processes, HR, payroll, procurement, supply chain, et cetera. You know, one has some type of shared service model um, and that might be on a tier one solution because some of them are pretty good at that. That's where they come from. Um, and then for the in terms of agility um, and the more unique or even customer facing um, components of the organization, there's a tier two solution in place and possibly even multiple tier two solutions from different solution providers or vendors. Um, so, so certainly I do think that's a critical question. It's not necessarily a one size fits all for the entire organization where you do have a central head office with multiple branches or multiple subsidiaries and and divisions, um, and, and especially when they're in different demographics or, or, 
countries, time zones, etc. Um, okay. Yes, yeah, so it's a good question, and I think one should always consider that for those types of organisations. Right. Now, what about this question? I, here's a question from uh, YouTube, and I'm actually going to broaden the question a little bit um, from the original intent, but hopefully it'll still cover what you're, you're looking for uh, here, Abdul. Um, but the question is, do you have any general advice on implementing AI technology with system integrators? What should we focus on? And maybe I'll, instead of just AI, maybe I'll talk about, uh, why don't we talk about just bleeding edge or emerging technologies, new stuff like AI, robotic, pro process automation, machine learning. Um, you know, how... You know, a lot of times these system integrators and software vendors are really pushing some of these newer emerging technologies, which may or may not make sense for where you are as an organization in, in your journey. And you really have to look at, you know, how big of a jump is that? Are we ready to make that leap now? Should it be in the first phase? Maybe it's a later phase that we deploy it. How would you suggest that an organization navigate some of those decisions around uh, newer, more robust emerging technologies uh, with the system integrator? How do, how do you suggest they handle that? Yes. Yes, and, and, and I think, Eric, perhaps to, to start in, in terms of responding to that question, as you correctly say, you know, the tier one vendors, um, these days it's about the digital platform, not just the kind of the ERP back office system, and they do or claim to have these new emerging technologies, whether it's machine learning or AI, IoT, whatever the case may be. And yeah, and, and, and to a large extent, that true, that is true, but they are still maturing solutions, and, and they're not necessarily fully matured in the marketplace yet. Um, so, so, so certainly uh, those types of solutions are gaining traction and, and are being deployed and, and effectively deployed. But I think the client organization needs to ask themselves, as you alluded to, are they, are they ready for this? Are they, do we have a digital savvy executive? Do we have you know, that type of innovative culture that's going to be able to exploit this, these types of technologies? And, and very importantly, have we bedded down the, the, the basic foundation of the our transactional um, you know, backbone within the organization because we can't call it, you know, we cannot innovate with an unstable foundation. And too often, I think organizations want to take this leap and are pushed by the market and certainly by the solution providers and the SRs to move into that emerging digital technology space. But they have not yet fed it down um, and, you know, that, that core foundation that allows them to, to just be in the game, not necessarily to win in their markets, but at least to play the game. Um, and I think it's fundamentally important that we get that part of the organization um, stabilized um, and, that the, and that there's a very specific use case and business case for, for engaging any SRs or deploying any of these so-called uh, emerging technologies. Yeah, and some of these emerging technologies, especially if you look at AI, you know, which, which is what the specific question was, was focused on, you look at something like an AI, which really threatens, in many ways, it threatens the status quo, it threatens uh, employees' jobs, you know, because you're potentially automating what someone was manually doing or, or decision-making that someone was making in the past. So the technology itself may be the right fit or it could be a good strategic enabler for your organization longer term, but shorter term, you've got a real change management issue, which when you look at some of these emerging technologies, I would argue that change management becomes even more important than it already was, which was already very important, but now it's even more important because you're disrupting the status quo even more than you already were. Um, so I think, I guess it kind of leads me to another question, which is more of a general question is, what are some of the missing competencies that system integrators don't necessarily have, or they don't do well, even if they tell you they do? Uh, what are some of those 
some of those uh, competencies that are oftentimes lacking, but yet those competencies are going to be critical to the success of your project. So we need to be aware of them and figure out how we're going to plug those gaps. What are, what are some thoughts that come to mind there? Yes, I think that there's some very basic ones, uh, which one, you know, almost never sees an SI take responsibility for. So in the, the data um, extra, ETL or extraction transformation load area, that mm. is often something that is absent from an SI agreement. Certainly tra training, uh, SIs like to use this train the trainer approach. I don't think it's particularly effective. Um, Agreed. Uh, and, 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 and there are a number of ones, but you know, Eric, the one that always kind of trips clients up and is, is user acceptance testing. Um, and one often finds that we have, that the contracts are structured in a way that the SI is accountable for the, for the integration testing. So let's say two or three integration test cycles leading up to user acceptance testing. But that's a critical handover point. And clients fail to organize properly for it and properly interrogate the system and recognize that you are now taking on the solution. And your job as a client now is to, is to assess whether the solution's been built in accordance with the design that you gave the SI in the blueprinting or design phase. And clients fail to recognize that they need to organize themselves accordingly to fulfill what is an extremely important role. Because beyond that point, you kind of lose your right to recourse. You know, it's a bit late and specifically post Goliath. So being able to build capability to at critical junctures or intervals in the project, step in and say, does this make sense? Am I happy with this? Um, and then step out and, 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 and hand that back to the SI and say, yes, we're kind of happy with this. You can now go ahead and deploy the solution. Or even, let me use a, 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 a typical example. I, I sit on a number of client steering committees for ELP projects. And very often, and it's quite concerning, go live or deployment decisions are made in one of two ways. Um, the SI walks into the meeting, to the final steering committee meeting, where we're going to approve or make the decision whether to go live or not and says we're ready to go live and and the executive kind of looks at their toes and everybody nods in agreement and it's a five minute meeting and we go live and often the issues or the SR walks into the steering committee meeting and says we're ready to go live and there's a, a, a whole debate about the extent to which we're ready to go live and is is there proper evidence available you know what are the key criteria is the evidence to support it have we met all the you know, all the necessary competencies business readiness and training and all those good things in place and there's a debate about it and a distinct lack of evidence to support any decision so i think that's a, just an example of where organizations need to ensure that they are that they are able to build capability to properly integrate inter interrogate these these decisions and make informed decisions on their project and the extent to which they are ready to move from one phase to the next or sign off on deliverables or deploy the solution whatever the catch may be. Yeah, yeah, really good point. And it's a <clears throat> it's another important milestone in the project that is really, really important for organizations and their internal project teams to take ownership of. So in other words, it's only you that should be deciding whether or not you're ready to move past this user acceptance testing in, into ultimately the training go live that happens after that. Um, and a lot of times organizations defer too much to the software vendors or the system integrators, I should say. And ultimately, um, you, you really do have to say, are we ready? Do we feel, how confident do we feel? It, it's amazing to me, you know, doing, we do a lot of expert witness work, which is, for those that don't know, it's expert witness work is when you're supporting a lawsuit. So um, there's a lawsuit that involves an ERP implementation, typically a system integrator and or software vendor gets sued because something goes wrong. And in those 
those failures that we see in, in these expert witness cases, it always fascinates me how often you hear this dynamic of the organization saying, well, the system integrator told us told us that everything was fine. They told us that the status was green, you know, across the board. Maybe there's a couple of yellows, but nothing major. But yet we went live and it was a total disaster. So you, you can't that's unacceptable. You can't let that happen. And you have to know it. And back to our opening comments about educating yourself and knowing enough to challenge and ask questions and challenge assumptions. You have to know enough to, to know whether or not the status is really green. If, if it's red and someone's telling you it's green, you should know enough to know that that's not a green status. Things are not going well or we're not ready or here's the risk that we need to mitigate. And that's a that's a big challenge that a lot of organizations face with with these system integrators. Professional skepticism. But yeah, professional skepticism. Yes. Be, uh, be, be a skeptic and be pleasantly surprised if you're being overly overly skeptic. It's very rare, though, that I see organizations be too skeptical. Typically, they're too optimistic or they, they believe too much. Um, and, and you really have to be a um, you have to challenge it in many ways. Um, so I guess just to wrap it up, I, I, I feel like we could talk easily another hour about this topic, maybe even more. But maybe just to wrap it up, you know, what is sort of a capstone question here? What sort of closing advice would you leave for an organization that's about to embark on a digital transformation? They're maybe they're in the process of managing a system integrator, or they're trying to figure out what system integrator is the best fit for them. Um, what, what are just some general, you know, high priority? What are those highest priority summarizations of, of best practices as far as managing your system integrator and just setting yourself up for better success? Yeah. So, so yeah, very quickly, Erica, given that we're at the end of the session. So, you know, I think one has to own the project and, and, and I know that's a bit of a buzzword, but you have to actually own it and understand what you're wanting out of it. I think one has to ensure that you um, that, that you, you manage that and, and you negotiate an appropriate contract and that you understand exactly what the SI is doing and what they're not doing and therefore what you need to take responsibility for. I think having the organizational structure in place, you know, it, it stays the client's project, and we haven't kind of even touched on things like the, you know, the typical pairing model that that SIs bring to the party, where they create two parallel project structures and never show they meet, um, with the SI project team reporting to the SI and and the, everybody else kind of reporting to the SI as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's so important in terms of how you structure the project, the types of roles, the stakeholder engagement, the people you bring on board, the the oversight, and then what do you define as success going forward? Um, and, and, and what constitutes success and having a common uniformed view amongst the executive and key stakeholders as to what constitutes success. And, and perhaps the last point I would make is, it makes sense to use a, a third party, you know, have someone in an insurance and advice role. The, the cost of such a role is generally negligible in terms of the overall capital cost of the project. Um, and set up, and embedded in the contract upfront, set up some type of quality metrics with regular stage gates and checks in check-ins at, at critical intervals in the project timeline to, to have someone independent assess, are we on track? Are we happy with this, these deliverables? Um, and, and, and kind of keep the SI honest if you want. So four or five key areas, but um, I do think it makes sense to uh, ensure that you do get independent advice and, and ongoing support throughout the project life cycle. And if you have the capabilities in place to do that, fine. But if not, I think it's very important that one has that in place. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's times when we're talking about this topic where I feel like our, our job as consultants is to be 
sort of a, a self-help or a motivational speaker of sorts, like t- telling organizations, you can do this. <laughs> you can take ownership. You're good enough. You can own this yourself. Don't let someone tell you how this project is going to going to work. You don't let make the decisions that are best for you. And it's amazing how just that that mindset alone, you know, addresses a lot you just mentioned is just take ownership. I mean, it's, it's your project. Do what you need to do. And, you know, certainly the system integrator is one work stream, one important work stream in the project. But that's a, that's only one work stream. You need an internal program manager or someone representing you that's managing the overall program, including the system integrator. You might have external third party resources like you, you mentioned some clients you've worked with and I have as well that have uh uh, independent contractors that they that they pull in and manage for certain uh, things, and that's that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Your system integrator may not agree with you. They may tell you that's that's a terrible idea because they want that business, they want that revenue. Um, but you, you find good resources out there. Um, that's a good way to diversify risk. It's a good way to give you more ownership. It's a good way to just bring in the skills that you need. But then there's all the other stuff like uh, the data migration, the change management, the process improvement. Um, architecture, integration, all that stuff that's outside the purview of what a system integrator typically does well. So you just have to sort of take that ownership and look at the big picture and make make sure you're addressing all of those all those areas. All right. Thanks, Clifford. Thanks for being here. Great to have you on the show. Hope to see you again soon on the show. And uh, there, I know we could have talked about that topic for another hour at least, but uh, we'll spare the audience that additional detail. We'll have you back to talk more about that. And uh, in fact, when we come back from a quick break, we're going to talk about some of the points that were brought up here during our discussion, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 54. I'm here with Kyler, and we just had Clifford Martin on the show talking about system integrators, how to manage them, how to hold them accountable. What were some of your thoughts and observations from that discussion, Kyler? Yeah, so this might be a very elementary question, um, but as the business technologist I am, I'm not sure why you need a system integrator. Like, do you always need one? Or it seems as though it would be a great solution just to cut them out of the entire process. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's almost like a necessary evil. I mean, in, in, in depending on who you are, I mean, as an organization, most organizations find that they need some sort of expertise in whatever product it is they're implementing. Now, having said that, there are some bigger organizations that prefer to build that competency in-house, which I, in fact, I encourage that. And to your point, you know, do you really need the system integrators? Could you hire the people directly? Could you hire people internally? There's a lot of different alternatives, but I, I think you bring up a bigger point, which is you don't have to settle for, you know, Accenture or Deloitte just because 
everyone knows who Accenture or Deloitte is. Um, there's a common uh, frame or a, a common phrase that um, I've always took exception to in, in the industry, which is I think it originated with IBM or the, the it was in reference to IBM. People would say, you know, no one ever get, gets fired for hiring IBM because it's a well-known name. They're a proven commodity. They've been around forever. The only problem is I know a lot of people that have been fired for hiring IBM. I know a lot of people that have been fired for and, and sued, by the way, for hiring Accenture, for hiring Deloitte, you know, insert system integrator here. So it's not necessarily safer. In some ways, it's actually riskier to hire some of these big system integrators, not because they don't know what they're doing, but because, like I said at the beginning of the intro to, to Clifford, um, goals are misaligned, people act in self-interest, and those two things combined with the fact that these large system integrators generate so much revenue from these bigger projects, it just creates this dynamic that isn't healthy. Um, in fact, the bigger, the bigger the system integrator, the more this is true, it seems that they feed off and thrive more the more incompetent or incapable that you are as an organization. So it's almost like they're being rewarded for creating this learned helplessness from their clients because the more helpless the clients are, the more they need these technical resources, the less likely they are to challenge those technical resources. You know, AKA, why do you have 100 people on this project? Do, I, do you really need to staff this with 100 people? Could we do it with 50? Could we do it with 30? Or whatever the number may be. So those are the sorts of things that, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself. But to your point, no, you don't need a system integrator. You certainly don't need a big one. Uh, I think a lot of companies think they have to hire a big one. There's a ton of really good second and third tier implementers and resellers and system integrators out there that too many organizations just overlook. Yeah, and you, I know you and Clifford had mentioned that a lot of times those tier two um, SIs are honestly more valuable because a lot of them were senior executives at a center of Deloitte and had, you know, left to have um, maybe a little bit more professional flexibility or a little less bias um, being pushed to do things that they, you know, weren't exactly aligned with. Um, so a lot of times that's kind of like a wealth of knowledge there, it seems like, and a great opportunity. Yeah, it is because, you know, I think the average tenure at, at those firms is like two years. And that's about how long I was at, uh, one of, at Price Waterhouse when I started my career. Um, because it's sort of like you're either going to really thrive in that environment and you're going to go on to like a partner track and you, you're buying into that model or not. And if you're not, you're, you're not going to last long. I didn't last long because I just couldn't tolerate the environment, the culture, the biases, the pol the internal politics is just nauseating. I would, I, I, I actually feel a little bit nauseous just thinking about some of the politics that would happen and the crap you have to deal with, pardon the language, the garbage you have to, you have to deal with as a, as a consultant there. But Having said that, it was a great place to learn. It was a great place to start my career, but I don't think the value I added, you know, to to clients that early in my career was worth what they paid for my services. But guess what? No one no one asked questions. No one asked why is this kid billing sixty hours a week at you know two hundred bucks an hour or whatever it was I was billing at the time. Um, no no one asked those questions, which was fascinating to me. So that's to me that's on the that's that's on the system integrators. But it's also on the organizations that hire the system integrators. Why do you let that happen? Would be the question I'd have for yeah. for executives. Yeah, and that um, that term professional skepticism that Clifford coined throughout your conversation, and just kind of managing to that. And I I wanted to ask you about something he mentioned that you you could ask for within the contracting phase, since he did stress like that's really where the contracting phase, the statement of work that's where everything is going to stem from and making sure that's tightened up. 
So when we're talking about moving from time deliverables to focus on the quality of deliverables, is that something that you can actually do and saying like, I, I don't really want to be billed for your time. I want to be billed, which I'm happy to pay for when we're done with the project. Um, not so much the billing timeline, but just the overall process of billing. Yeah, I have honestly, I have mixed feelings on that because I think a lot of times organizations look for that silver bullet way of mitigating entirely that risk. And on one hand, I get where organizations are coming from. They might have milestone-based billing or quality-based billing or uh, fixed bid projects. You know, a lot of government, nonprofit types of organizations in bigger corporations really like the fixed bid model. They think that that's going to mitigate risk, but it just creates other risk that, in my opinion, are actually greater than the risk you've mitigated by having a fixed bid contract. With, you know, more of the quality or milestone or time-based billing, um, it, it, there's there's pros and cons to each, and, and there's not a good answer. I don't think – you certainly want to get the right contract in place and make sure that you have the right governance, the right checkpoints, the right out, you know, exit clauses and termination clauses, all that stuff. Um, maybe, sure, maybe you want to tie uh, payments to milestones. That can help. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what you really need is better project governance. I mean, if you just have better better project governance and manage the system integrator, t- you know, take a hands-on role – and managing those outside resources, that's more than anything is what's going to solve the problem. You can try to you can try to address it contractually or at least set yourself up for success contractually, but the only that that alone is not going to solve the problem. You have to have good project governance. And the only person that can really provide that is you, the organization. And that's something that we when we're working with clients during their implementations, that's part of what we do is we help them get those controls in place. We help them provide that governance. We help them manage the system integrator so that they're not getting taking advantage of or overpaying for those services for, for questionable business value. Absolutely. And, and he, both of you mentioned kind of that benefits realization work stream. So if you are talking to a client or helping them through kind of their relationship with their SI, how do you make sure that they are keeping a pulse on what is actually the benefits realization to the organization? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the first is you've got to, you know, introduce or integrate that work stream into the overall program. And again, that's that's usually not something that a system integrator or a technical implementer is going to bring to the table. And they may say it's not important because all we're trying to do here is implement technology. Um, some organizations actually downplay or dismiss the value of benefits realization because they say, well, we don't really have a choice here because we have to replace our technology. So it doesn't really matter what kind of benefits we get out of it. Well, I mean, that's that's like saying, you know, we've got to we hate where we live. We've got to go somewhere. So let's just start driving. Um, it's not really a good answer. It's probably going to get you somewhere different than where you are now, but not necessarily anywhere better. You could end up somewhere a lot worse. So you need to have that benefits realization in place and that framework to measure, to hold people accountable, both your system integrator and your internal resources, all that stuff. And And the other thing too, by the way, is it keeps you focused on business value throughout the implementation. It keeps you from going down all these rabbit holes and side paths that don't add any value and increase the cost and lack of, you know, take away the focus of the project. That's really interesting. Um, You know, one of the other interesting pieces of that is kind of that go live decision making. I just pictured in my head like this bunker type of visualization with like this big red button where everyone's in the room and, you know, they're ready to go and they've planned on this for for years and that type of, of overall scenario. Um, however, it's, it sounds like a lot of times the SI helps 
dictate that decision, which I assume they would be like involved in that collaboration. But based on what Clifford was saying, a lot of times they kind of just tell the business like, it's now, go. And then, you know, that a lot of times that doesn't end up working out in the in the best and most successful process. So I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a sort of um, a CYA, you know, cover your arse uh, mentality that system integrators have. They don't want to. It doesn't. It does in the short term. It doesn't serve them well to point out all the problems with the project, and or anything that could be perceived as a problem that they created or they let happen or whatever. So there's human egos involved in this, and that's a, a real problem in that. It's almost like the fox is guarding the hen house. The fox is saying, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, it's all green. There's a couple of yellows here, but we've got a plan to address that. And then when things, you know, hit the fan, what ends up happening, the, the other dynamic that happens is, well, no problem. Yep, this happens. We've got a plan to remediate. And, oh, by the way, you're not doing your job, client. And here's all the things you need to do to fix this. And in my opinion, a lot of that can be avoided. But uh, I think a lot of these system integrators are masters of spinning spinning reality to say, hey, this is normal. It's normal to have this total chaos. And, you know, you go live and you can't ship product. That just happens. Well, it, no, it shouldn't happen. It does happen more than it should, but it should not happen. There's absolutely no reason why you should let that happen. But yet system integrators let it happen time and time again. And a lot of times, especially when we look at these expert witness projects where we're involved with helping support a lawsuit and provide an opinion in, in a lawsuit, what we find is the you know, you're ready to go live and the system integrator is telling you the project status is green, 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 green. We did our go live checklist. Everything checks positively and we're ready to roll. And I'd say half of that or more of those results or those outputs are influenced by the need to make us look good. Like, look at everything we've done. Um, a, a lot of times there's a lot of pressure. Like, we need to go live. You guys are taking too long. Typically, there's delays along the way. So that for just further adds to the pressure. So the system integrator and the humans in decision-making or making recommendations oftentimes are uh, acting in their own, you know, just imperfect human ways that are contributing to these failures. Yeah. I, I guess it's just mind blowing to me because it's like, if you, if you're providing that really truly terrible of a customer experience, how do you get things like references? Like I get, you might not be like courting for follow on work um, and you kind of just like drop the mic and leave, but it seems as though there there has to be some level of accountability on them, and it just seems like they're completely unmonitored. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, to be in business, I mean, you have to have a certain number of minimum successful clients out there, right? If you don't, you're just not gonna you're not gonna last. But um, it's relatively easy to find, even if you just pick five or ten percent of your your customers that are referenceable, but the other ninety percent are not. If you if you have five or ten percent that are um, that means you can not screw up five or ten percent of the time and have pretty good references. The other thing too is that there's a lot of bias out there, especially a lot of what I'm saying, by the way, is again truer, more true for the larger system integrators than it is for the second or third tier ones. Um, but for the big system integrators, um, there's just a huge amount of bias in the industry, partly because they're so well known, and partly because a lot of those people at those larger firms they leave and they go work in industry and they have a they have a favorable bias toward those system integrators. So in other words, they were part of the problem when they were working at the system integrator. They go into industry and they just they perpetuate the problem by hiring the same type of organization that was creating problems when they were there, but they don't necessarily see it that way because it was a positive experience for them. Um, you know, when I was at 
Price Waterhouse, I learned a ton. There was some there was some definite positives there, but I, it always bothered me that I felt like I, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like we were acting in clients' best interest. But some people, a lot of people, I'd say probably most people that leave the Big Five don't see it that way. They see it as a positive thing, and they're not necessarily thinking about what could have made the client more successful or why did the client screw up. Um, so. I don't know if that, I have a bit of a jaded view on that, I'll admit, but that's my opinion of the situation. Yeah, well, I mean, Adam, my husband has a similar story, which I, I won't completely share, but where he was put in a situation where he really felt like the integrity of who he was as a professional was being called into question because of what he was being forced to tell a client. And I think for him, you know, that that was the breaking point. And um and, you know, I've been in similar situations when it comes to a corporate career where it just it it doesn't feel right. Like the, the things that you're doing for your customer isn't something that kind of matches your integrity of a person. So I definitely get that. I think it's it's just amazing to me that there isn't more, I guess, competition on that level because every business needs software. And it almost reminds me of like telecom. Right. You want TV. This is your TV here. This is all the TV you can have. This is what you get. Oh, you want a cell phone? Oh, OK, well, you can have. T-Mobile or Verizon, you know, or AT&T. Like there's no tier two, if you will, of mobile carriers out there that will provide the same amount of service. So it kind of reminds me of, of those marketplaces where there just isn't as much competition to make it, make people be honest really with their customers and clients. And to add to that, I agree with you, to add to that too, there's no regulation in this space. There's no government rules and regulations for how this stuff works. If you're on the audit side or tax, you know, those big firms that also do audit and tax, those parts of the business are heavily regulated. But when you get into digital transformation and ERP consulting, that is not at all regulated. So you add those two factors, the fact that you have these big, massive, well-known players that they're heavily concentrated, combine that with the fact that they've got a poor track record and there's no uh, government uh, or regulatory accountability or any other sort of accountability for that matter. Um, that's, uh, that's a problem. Absolutely. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you and Nate who both have, you know, decades of experience in the industry um, and hear kind of why you both chose kind of the more independent agnostic path uh, when it's really not the easiest path to choose um, from our conversation. So I'm excited to kind of play um, that clip for our audience today. Yeah, yeah, and it, I am too. And it, it'll it's a good conversation that goes into why having an, an objective agnostic view of your entire project from start to finish is so important. And that is something else, by the way, that's missing from most, if not all, system integrators is they're so focused and specialized in one technology that that's all they see is my technology has to fit within your business. Every possible nook and cranny, I can make it fit. Whereas if you take a more agnostic approach, you're going to have a different perspective. You're not trying to force fit technology where it doesn't belong. You're not looking at it just from a technology perspective. You're looking at the more important uh, people and process and strategy issues. And that's part of what we'll, we'll talk about with Nate here in just a minute. But before we get to that, though, let's take a quick break. We'll have Nate Stroher on the show talking about technology agnostic approaches to digital transformation. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Way. You will never understand it because it happened. 
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 54. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham and excited to introduce our next guest. Um, and it's actually a clip we're going to play you of our next guest, uh, which is Nate Stroher. He's the director or a director of strategy and transformation. He's, he's practice lead here at Third Stage in the United States. Uh, and he is in a video here that, that Kyler hosted and facilitated asking questions about uh, technology ag agnostic implementations. What does it mean? Why is it important? And uh, so let's just jump into the clip and we'll, we'll debrief afterwards. So here's the clip with Nate talking to Kyler and I about technology agnostic approaches to digital transformation. I'm Kyler Cheatham here with Nate Stroher and Eric Kimberling. And today we're going to talk about what is technology agnostic. So Eric, let's start with you. How did you get involved in independent consulting and technology agnostic information? Well, it started earlier in my career having worked for one of the big system integrators that was not uh, system or uh, software agnostic, um, finding that there's a huge amount of bias in the industry and the work that I was doing early in my career. And so that really just stimulated an idea or a perceived need mm -hmm. for independence, uh, just because it, as I continue my career, I found that there's not a lot of consulting firms out there that are truly independent. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to start a consulting firm that specialized in ERP and, and digital transformation, but also one that was completely agnostic and representing clients' best interests rather than vendor best interests. Sure, sure. And Nate, if you were to define technology agnostic, what, what would you say? I, I think it, it's best summed up that you, you're going to choose the best solution for your client. And I think, I think it's important that with, with agnostic, when we talk about software agnostic or platform agnostic, technology agnostic, that we all have biases. So whether you know it or not, or whether you have your interest uh, financially to lead someone to a platform or a technology, it, when you're agnostic, you're, you're really, you, you eliminate a lot of those biases, whether they're perceived or they're real. It, it's just, you're giving them what's best for them. Absolutely. And so when we talk about independence, let's just kind of lay it all out there for our audience. Do you have any relationship with vendors? Um, we'll probably start with you, Eric. Any sort of financial kickbacks or anything like that? Yeah, no, we, we don't have any sort of financial tie to, to vendors. So the, the key litmus test for us is do we have anything to gain financially or otherwise by recommending any one solution? And if the answer is no, we don't have anything to gain, then we're being truly independent. Really all we care about is what the client's needs are and making sure we address the client's uh, satisfaction and their, their operational needs. So Nate, what if you had a bad experience with a previous vendor on another client or something like that? Do you ever take those biases or that information into your recommendations? 
Well, I I don't I, I think it's I think it's kind of important. It, it, there's obviously people that you want to work with and that you don't want to work with, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's important to know that that with the big technology platforms, you're, you're going there's there's a team that you're going to work with. So mm-hmm. just because you might have a bad experience with one individual on the team or one team out of many of their teams, uh, that doesn't really represent the technology. So again, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's really back to the best um, fit for the customer. But th- there is also a little bit of a bias in the sense that you know we, we've worked around technology enough that we, we have a good sense of what is a good fit for customers. And we know uh, with a lot of the implementation providers who are good to work with and who are going to be the better teams to introduce to a smaller customer, to a larger customer. So I, I would say that we're still agnostic, but we do know um, through our experience uh, in over 20 years in this field, uh, who's going to be a best fit for certain customers. Sure. So it sounds like you have industry insight as opposed to bias. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, Eric, when you hire people at third stage, how do you make sure that they're not bringing any other vendor relationships or anything like that? What kind of expectations do you set for your team? Well, that's, it's a good question because that's probably the hardest or one of the hardest aspects of our business model is finding good people that are knowledgeable of digital transformation, technology transformation, business transformation, all that stuff, but at the same time aren't solely focused on one solution. So typically we don't hire many, if any, uh, consultants that had specialized in one solution and that's it. So someone with 20 years of SAP or Microsoft mm-hmm. or whatever the type of experience might be wouldn't necessarily completely disqualify them, but that those types of skill sets are harder to break sure. out of that bias or that myopic focus on one technology. So most of the team members we have, if not all of them, have worked across technology platforms. Maybe not every one of them, obviously, even mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't worked with every system out there, but collectively, you know, we, we hire people that have touched two, three, four, five different systems throughout their careers and they know how to deploy them, they know the strengths and weaknesses of each, and they just tend to have a broader, a more balanced view of the market than someone that grew up in one specific niche or yeah. one vertical. Certainly, yeah, that makes sense. So, Nate, do you ever experience client bias? Like, say a vendor got to a client before they hired someone like third stage, and that client is like, I'm definitely going to need this software. And if so, how, how do you work through that? Oh, you definitely, and almost every client, and, <laughs> and, and in a positive and a negative way. Yeah. Uh, we've, uh, without naming technologies, we'll, we'll start on kickoff calls and and someone will say well i had a bad experience with this software we don't even want to consider it in fact uh, a client that we kicked off three weeks ago said we're, we're not looking at this technology and and now they're they end up being one of our shortlist vendors that we're going to be working with so there there's always that past experience of a, a good or a bad relationship with a with a software or with an implementation provider uh, I think the the one thing that that helps that we always try and talk to our clients about is that that was a that was a completely different situation and not all past implementations that were either successful or unsuccessful are a result of simply the software or the implementation providers performance there is two people in that relationship. There's a client and there's the implementation provider. So it, as much as we can coach them through the fact that that was a past situation, the technology that you dealt with in the past is much different likely mm-hmm. than what you're going to deal with today. And the, and the more we can give them 
try as much as we can to to clear their mind of what happened in the past. But we're all we're all human, and we all have emotional yeah, baggage that right. you deal with. And and it's also in a positive way. Like sometimes just because you had a good solution 15 years ago, the right. technology might not be good anymore. And yeah. so don't don't keep driving us down that road when we know there's a, a better solution that we could introduce you to. Yeah, absolutely. And and building on that, Eric, from a independent perspective, do you ever recommend something to a client and they don't choose it? And what kind of happens with that situation? Yeah, th- we have a subset of clients over the years that hire us because they want us to tell them what they want to hear. And so oftentimes you'll get a CIO or a, someone high up in the organization that is, to, to Nate's point, sort of leaning a certain way. They grew up or, or in their past experiences, they have familiarity and comfort with a certain product. A lot of times it's uh, one of the bigger vendors like SAP or Oracle or Microsoft. And a lot of times they'll sort of do their own evaluation. They'll come to the conclusion that they want that same solution for their organization, but there's not internal confidence in that direction. So they hire us to come in and do an independent assessment. So a lot of times we fight internal biases where you're telling the client, we need to tell the the client the reality and the truth versus not necessarily what they want to hear. Sometimes it works out that it is what they want to hear and it it sort of validates the way they were thinking. But a lot of times it's a recommendation that runs counter. Um, to what their biases are. Now, there are times too where we make a recommendation and the client goes against that. And they'll say, well, you know, we, we like the second option better for these reasons, or maybe they weight the criteria a little bit differently than what we had originally done in the assessment. And sometimes that's driven by bias and kind of getting to the answer they want. Other times it's um, just other forces at play in terms of uh, them going in a different direction. Yeah. And Nate, how do you collaborate with vendors, specifically when you're brought into a project that might not be on track or achieving the objectives that the client is looking for? How do you make sure that you treat the vendor as a partner, but you also maintain your independence? You know, I think what what we try and do, um, or at least from my point of view and, and the teams that I work with, is you try and give everyone the, you try and give everyone the same opportunity to succeed at a client if they take that or not is is really their their game to win or lose and and a, a good example and I keep going back to these examples that we've had in the last couple months is a lot of the vendors will hold a discovery call with the client to to learn before they fill out the RFP and before they do the demo just exactly what the client's needs are and and how some of the specific niches in their business can be satisfied you the vendors that, that want to come in and, and have these discovery sessions and the more interaction they want to have with the client, they have the opportunity to and we'll work with them to give them as much time in front of the client as they want and as they need. Um, if, if a vendor doesn't want to do it, we've at least made the opportunity for them to do it. So again, you know, I think it's just treating them all the same, giving them all, giving them all the same opportunities and really giving them the opportunity to succeed or fail based on their performance. Interesting. And what happens if you have a bad demo, but you know the solution might be a good choice? Does that ever happen? Yeah, I think it happens almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes is the answer. More than we like. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple things. And, you know, a lot of times a, a vendor will shoot themselves in the foot and they're done. Um, what what we try and do, and, and I think it 
probably uh, we're successful about 95% of the time is we try and have two or three solutions that are all going to be the right solution for our clients. So if someone fails, we, we have two in the wings that, mm -hmm. that are going to be a good solution. Um, some of the vendors will come in and say we, that just wasn't our best performance yeah. and they'll, they'll have the opportunity to make it up to the, the client and come in and have either another demo or demo the pieces that they didn't really do a good job showing how they can match their requirements. Um, so it, it's just kind of a case-by-case -case basis. But a lot of times um, you, you get one shot and if you really blow it, you, you blow it. Yeah. And they jo our job a lot of times is to differentiate between just a blown demo because the sales rep or the person doing the demo uh -huh. just isn't good or they're just not connecting with the client's needs for whatever reason versus ones where it truly is a problem with the technology and that's why the demo bombed. You know, there's a there's a glaring deficiency in the product, therefore they couldn't demo it very well. Hmm. So there's, usually it falls into one of those two camps. And so a lot of what the values we bring is to help differentiate um, the difference between is it, a, is it a product problem or is it the way the, the product was demoed? And a lot of what we use too is just data from our own database, mm -hmm. the quantitative data to help either validate, you know, is that consistent with what we saw in the demo or is there some sort of discrepancy that we need to follow up on? Our, our data shows one story and we have experience that tells one story and then what we saw in the demo is something different and we've, we've got to figure out how to reconcile that. And, and the one thing to, to add on to that, it, there's there's always two parts to a demo. It's the, there's the technology fit and, and vendors are, are going to, they're, they're all, if they've made the short list, they're they're gonna be pretty comparable as far as being able to meet the needs of the, the client. And then there's that whole cultural fit, the, the mm -hmm. soft side of it. And I think the worst thing that a vendor can do and the quickest way to not have a repeat uh, demo or not have a second chance to come in is if they just didn't pay attention to the client, if they just didn't take the time to learn their business. Those are usually the tougher sells to get them back in the door right. to show their um, to show their product. If if it's if it's something that it was you know, there's technology glitches, there's misunderstandings as far as what a client's told the vendor. There, there's always going to be those situations, and for the most part, people are, are putting a lot of money and a lot of time into this process. And if they if if they think that it's something worth pursuing, they'll give them a second chance. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you guys have a lot of kind of hard or maybe uncomfortable conversations with clients when we talk about, you know, recommending a technology that they might not have thought of before or they have had a bad experience with or the demos and, and making them kind of consider a demo that didn't go very well. Eric, how, how do you build that trust with your clients so that they really do kind of blindly trust you in these situations? Well, I'd say, first of all, that most clients have a high level of trust just because of the independence mm -hmm. of the technology agnostic model. So they know that we're not being driven by our own self-interest. We're not out to try and make commission on anything because we don't make commission on, on our recommendations. Uh, but I think that, you know, the just as big of a problem is having the tough conversations around maybe a, a product that could be a good fit that a client is biased against. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say, I'd be curious to see if you agree with this. It seems like more often than not though, it's the opposite. It's that there's a bias toward a product and we have to say, hey, we know you're enamored by all these cool bells and whistles, but the reality of how the, we're seeing this deployed at other clients tells this story. And so you sort of have to like deflate their optimism a little bit, which that sometimes is even harder mm -hmm. than convincing them that a product they think is terrible or isn't a good fit, convincing them that, that it is. So 
it goes both ways for sure. I, I don't know if it's a, if it's greater than fifty fifty or whatever. But. Yeah, and we and we just had that conversation this week with the with a customer that said, you know, you've you've recommended what we'll call three of the big four mm-hmm. uh, mid market solutions, and they said we we really want to maybe look at some of the open source solutions. We want to look at some of the smaller players. And we had to have that conversation to say, you know, th- yeah, there are a lot of really good things about that. However, you have a really small IT budget. You have a small IT department. Yeah. There's so many things that keep you from wanting to pursue those opportunities because you're, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. So, you know, and but sometimes you just the, the client wants to look at at that solution and you, you let them look at that solution and let them learn for themselves. And uh you know, sometimes that's that's what it takes. Yeah, yep, definitely. Those resources are so important, um, Eric. When when it comes to the overall competitive nature of um, independent or technology agnostic firms, why aren't there more of them? Well, I think just having started, you know, two independent technology agnostic consulting firms now, I would say it's a lot harder because to to start an independent firm because you're not getting the support of software vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to open up shop tomorrow um, that aligns with one of the big software vendors, they're going to immediately uh, give you certification, they'll give you leads, they'll give you marketing support, sure. and you just become, you sort of get wrapped into their whole mm-hmm. ecosystem. So in the short term, it's a lot easier just to start a, you know, a VAR or a, a yeah. consulting firm that's aligned with, with the software vendor. Uh, but like I said, there's plenty of them out there. There's, I don't know how many there are, but if you look at SAP and Oracle and Microsoft and all the different consultants out there that focus on that, there's tons of them. So I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. And, and the other part of it too, getting back to one of the earlier points about hiring and how difficult it can mm-hmm. be to find good consultants that have broad experiences, there's just not a lot of them. Most, mm-hmm. most consultants come up through their career focusing on one technology. So if they're going to start a consulting firm, chances are they're going to do what they know best, which is to focus on that one technology. So I think those two things combined are probably why there's not, many, there's not more uh, independent firms out there is, is just that sort of experience bias and then also the fact that it's just easier uh, in, in the short term to have a, a big vendor like SAP or Oracle or Microsoft feeding you leads and helping you get the, the firm off the ground. Absolutely. And I think we can kind of wrap up on that note. So if you are a company or if our, a company is watching this and they're considering not hiring an independent consultant, what are some of the risks associated with that? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is just the, the biases, you know, everything we talked about and that Nate was talking about with, with client biases. Organizations that don't implement various ERP systems for a living simply can't know what there is to need to know about the digital transformation in software space. So you're going to be limited by your own biases, by your own blind spots, and uh, you're going to succumb to the pressure or the spun messaging that you get from vendors, which typically is going to mismanage expectations and you're going to be overly optimistic and it's not realistic, the picture that gets painted mm-hmm. from software vendors. So if you don't know that, if you haven't been through that process, if you don't have an independent advisor, uh, that's just going to further complicate things. Sure. Yeah, and I, think, and I think there's a process that you go through with every selection and digital transformation project that, that there's important steps to take every time and I could you know, use different analogies for, um, you know, self-improvement, that sort of thing. But that it's, it's those steps that really weed through what Eric referenced in that is a, a vendor, a vendor has their set way of showing you what their solution is. And it, it's obviously going to be the best 
way for them to highlight their strengths and and by using a, a real set methodology of, of examining defining your requirements examining all the different technologies and how they can not only satisfy your requirements but work with the other systems mm -hmm. and really look at that whole picture you're really putting yourself in a much better position to control what the vendors are showing you versus them coming in controlling what they show you yeah sounds like project ownership really is um, a main objective there yeah yeah all right thanks Nate, Kyler, uh, that was great to have you guys uh, talking about that important topic. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team, will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D, Stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 54 i'm here with kyler we just had a discussion with nate stroller talking about technology agnostic digital transformation so now that you've had some time to digest that video, which you produced uh, not too long ago with, with Nate and I, what are some of your takeaways from that, Kyler? Yeah, I, th I think that conversation is so important because a lot of times we get questions about like, what does agnostic mean? Or you must have some sort of partnerships and, and we just we just truly don't. Like for example, our Digital Stratosphere 2022 event that's coming up, or that is happening now, I should say, um, is a lot of vendors offer to sponsor that and we you know politely and respectfully say no that's not something that we're interested in we really have no financial ties or really ties in general except for helping um, our customers to implement technology um, you know one thing i i, I want to just showcase to our audience is we kind of talked about what happens when you have to take a client and convince them that the software they're married to, that they've looked up, that they've Googled, is not the correct software for them within your recommendation. And I thought it was just so, you and and Nate are just so good at saying like, well, you know, I understand why you see that, but these are all of the different reasons why. And really laying out those deliverables and that documentation um, but I can only imagine that that must be really difficult, especially if you have a team of people that really like one software and it's your job independently, not only with software vendors kind of whispering in your ear and whispering in the client's ear, but the client actually wanting that. 
and you coming in and saying like, I understand it's a great software, but for your processes, this is not the best choice for you. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's always an interesting situation because it creates such chaos, you know, usually, you know, a lot of times clients have, have narrowed down the field to two options and they're sort of a split decision and they want us to come in and help, help them get along and figure out what the right answer is. But a lot of times what ends up happening is it, um, you get the vendors who know that they've got this group in their hip pocket, but not that group. So they're going to go attack that group and talk about how, you know, the priority should be over here and et cetera, et cetera. So it just gets to be a chaotic, uh, situation when you don't have structure behind how you evaluate. And that's where the structure sort of depersonalizes it, takes the emotion out of it and looks more objectively and more uh, quantitatively at how, you know, what the solution is. And so that's why prioritization is so important. That's why you don't just have a laundry list of a thousand requirements. Whoever meets the most requirements is going to win. That's, it's not that simple. You have to prioritize your requirements, focus on the things that are most important to you as a business and the things that are going to have the biggest differentiators among different systems out there. And that really helps you narrow it down a bit. And it, and, and also the other thing I'll say too, is when you're dealing with opinions, opinions are open to influence. So, you know, it may be that a certain vendor just demos their product better and therefore there's a perception that they're, they're a better vendor. Well, that just means they have better salespeople in many cases. It doesn't mean it's a better product necessarily. So that's where, you know, our database of quantitative, objective, independent data to show how these different systems in the market compare across different functions and requirements. We've got like, I think 30, over 30,000 different business requirements in our database with several hundred software solutions evaluated against those 30,000 requirements. And that's, it's hard to argue with data. You know, these, it, it's, uh, it's somewhat subjective because someone still had to evaluate how well a system could do, you know, requirements A, B, and C, but it's an objective evaluation that it, it's harder to argue with in that way. And it becomes less personal. So that's, that's one way to sort of cut through the politics and the internal dynamics and the vendor fighting that, that ends up going along with these sorts of decision processes. Absolutely. It's just, it, you know, being independent, it seems as though, you know, you're coming in as the business advocate, but sometimes it's your job to tell the business like, hey, we got to get a lot of things together before we can even really talk about what software we're going to select because we don't even have any defined business processes or we need to, you know, get our data management under control. And I think a lot of people don't understand um, the agnostic is for business consulting too. It's not just you know, for software, it's going in and completely revamping or helping our business partners and clients um, do process evaluations, understand their requirements, go in and host these workshops and really become one of the team, almost, you know, completely immerse yourself into the business. Um, so it's a process. It's just not about going in and saying, oh, you want to be able to, you know, like Christy, I, I just hosted a podcast last week with Christy and talking about the integration of Shopify. It's not that you just want to sell your things online. It's about, well, where are they? How do you get them there? You know, all of those different processes that a lot of times people don't realize that we're also advising on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And Christy's one of our consultants, or, or actually she's a, I think, senior manager now mm -hmm. that focuses on our, our small and mid-sized company. So, uh, good to, we'll have to have her on the show sometime soon as well yeah oh yeah she she's great she's actually on um our digital stratosphere podcast this week so um she's talking about biz big data and small business um as well so she uh does a lot of great data management there and she has another one coming up 
um, talking about family-owned businesses, which is very interesting, and the dynamics around those. Um, but we we digress. <laughs> right, as we always do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then you know the other thing I, I thought was really interesting, just in your overall career paths, you know. Um, Nate worked for a, a bigger system integrator and left, you know, to, to become uh, more independent. And he kind of talked about his journey there. And, and so did you and just seeing the overall opportunity in the marketplace. But again, it doesn't seem like a ton of people have seen that opportunity. Uh, and you kind of talked about how easy really it is for a software vendor to come in and say, like, hey, you know, we'll give you a ton of money to start a consulting firm, but will you make sure you kind of sell our product first, which I thought was really interesting because it, I assume it must be a little bit harder to raise capital as an independent um, consulting firm as opposed to, you know, getting a, a, a bunch of money from a bigger software firm. Yeah. And, and it's not just the money you get too. It's, it's also the lead generation, the, the BD support. And so there, there's a lot of appealing uh, pieces of being, becoming a partner of a, of a software vendor or an implementer or system integrator or all the above. Um, in fact, you know, it's one of the reasons why when, when I started third stage, I, I focused so much on creating a marketing engine that was totally self-sustainable and independent from the vendor. So in others, we don't get leads from vendors. We don't get um, any sort of, you know, we have no referral or commission arrangements with, with vendors. And so we have no, there's no economic interest. And I, and I try to keep this as hundred percent pure where there's absolutely no economic interest that we have in recommending one product over another or ensuring that a client buys more of a certain technology than, than not. Um, the, only, the only masters we serve are our clients. Um, and that's by design, that's really important. Um, but if we were to have masters that were a software vendor, it, it just, it's sort of like its own little echo chamber. You, you start hearing and drinking the same thing, or you start hearing the same things, you start drinking the same Kool-Aid, and uh, it just becomes sort of like your own little reality. And so when you go to talk to, to clients, you've got an extreme bias that's well-baked into your mindset, because partly because you're going to get compensated by doing that, um, but also because that's all you've been exposed to. You've been listening to the same messaging. You've been drinking the same Kool-Aid for so long over time. Um, you know, whereas we come at it from a fresh perspective because we don't have, you know, we have the luxury of not being tethered by those, those biases. Absolutely. Well, definitely a great conversation um, with you and Nate, um, and we'll continue to kind of produce those videos just about what is the, the third stage overall brand, just so our audience community can get to know us a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned the Digital Stratosphere podcast, which is our sister podcast. We actually put out three episodes of that show every week, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can find new episodes of that on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And then uh, this this podcast, Transformation Ground Control, comes out every Wednesday. Totally different format, too. You know, this is more of a long form, you know, call it a more traditional, I guess, uh, podcast show, whereas Digital Stratosphere is more like 10 to 15 to 30 minute uh, bite-sized chunks that are re released more frequently. So it's just a different format depending on your style and uh, what you're looking for. This is, I'd say, more of a deeper dive conversational approach. The Digital Stratosphere is more uh, to the point, I guess I'd say, and, and more focused on specific topics. So be sure to check that out. If you, if you like this show and you're, look, you're looking for another podcast to listen to, that's another great one to check out too, which is uh, Digital Stratosphere. You can find that the same place you find this podcast. 
So, um, well, great. Well, thanks for thanks for all the great analysis and discussion here today, Kyler. Really appreciate you being here as always. And uh, thank you to the audience for being here today. Again, be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday. Uh, check us out at uh, thirdstage-consulting.com. And also, if you weren't able to attend our Stratosphere event, which is actually happening this week digitally and virtually, uh, it's happening this week as we speak. But if you're listening to this podcast too late or, you know, it's after the fact, uh, be sure to go to stratosphere2022.com and you can actually listen to a recording of, of the event if you missed it. Or if you happen to be listening to this podcast right when it comes out, you still have time to join some of the live uh, sessions uh, from February 8th to the 10th. So be sure to check out stratosphere2022.com. Uh, if you'd like to just learn from other thought leaders in the space and just unpack some best practices around digital transformation a little bit more, and uh, we'll look forward to having you there. So thanks again, everyone, for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.